Сложная система ловушек, что ли. Но стоит тут появиться людям, как все здесь приходит в движение. Здесь исполнится ваше самое заветное желание. Самое выстраданное. Yeah, big right. vibes. Nothing but nothing but uh, late Soviet era vibes, I'd say. Come say get some. Come get some. <laughs> I mean, look what look what the vibes did to me, man. <laughs> they turned you bisexual. <laughs> They're not allowed to be bisexual anymore. It's July fourth or July first. That's right. That's right. July that was last month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's straight again. Sorry. Oh straight, crap. Straight Pride Month now. Yeah. Yeah. It's straight. It's every straight month. Really. Straight. Straight Disappointment Month. <laughs> the name for it. Um, this is Movie Night Extravaganza. We are on episode 99. Uh, you know, rounding up to 
this week being the first, uh, you know, anniversary of the first episode of Movie Night Extravaganza. We're, we're, we're really hitting these milestones pretty quickly. We have episode 100 coming up on the 15th. So this is going to be, uh, you know, quite quite a nice uh, couple weeks. We are, of course, talking about Stalker. Um, I am joined, as always, by Jay Underworld, artist, illustrator, uh, book cover, uh, you know, book cover connoisseur, uh, comic book connoisseur, all, all, of, all of the above. Um, how's it going? <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. I, I, I just built this uh, setup that I have. Uh, it did not exist this morning, and uh, it, it's here now. So, uh, uh, the work in progress. But there we go. Word. Yeah, I like it. I like the I like the lighting so far. It's it's a lot better than uh you know when you popped up on uh on Tuesday. I'd say. Yeah, that was a, me sitting on the floor with just regular light bulbs. <laughs> yeah, this is better showing, than that. It's shown through. Um, also joined by uh, Conan Neutron, supposedly the host of Protonic Reversal, although you know, not an episode this week. Uh, my my dude, please. I'm, please. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, uh, front man for Conan Neutron, the secret friends, just got back from a tour. Um, did yeah, yeah, we kind of uh, talked a little bit about that in, in the after yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's old news now. That was last week. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, shot a, another segment of the music video that a uh, friend of the show and former guest, though, Mark Borchardt, is directing today. So that was good. It was hot, but it was good. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'm going to go, uh, you know, wrap up some nuts and throw them to see if gravity changes. And uh, we'll just see how the, the, how the show goes. But I love Stalker. <laughs> this is a great movie. This is one of my favorite Criterion Challenge discoveries. And uh, I like this movie quite a bit. And I'm, st- I'm stoked that we're doing it and amused that the next one we're doing is Clerks. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing, uh, we're doing Clockwork Orange in between those two. I, uh, that, look, know, I get which, which is the perfect transition, it. right? Yeah. yeah exactly. What, what goes in between these two? Oh, yeah. Clockwork Orange. <laughs> <laughs> But technically speaking, in the canonical movie next extravaganza sequencing, the next one is going to be Clerks. But, I, you know, it's in the same way where we did, like, what? We did The Suicide Squad and then Portrait of a Lady on Fire in immediate succession. I mean, I'm in. More in common than you think. No. I mean, I, look, it's look. Two absolute bangers, though. Let's be honest. Yeah, they both are badass movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yes. but they both have people yeah. on fire. Yeah. They yeah, both indeed have people on fire. You're correct about that. Yes. <laughs> but of course, we're joined by C. Derek Varn, hasn't been on in a while, host of Varn Vlog and a million other projects going on right now. Um, I'm sure. Uh, how's it going? I'm doing well. Um, I have somehow made a name for myself as one of the people people go to to talk about Tarkovsky because uh, I was just talking off air about how I've probably done, in all seriousness, about. 12 different podcasts on on target this will be the second or third one i've done on stalker so um uh, well, we, but we, did, we did uh kurosawa's ran for uh yep. this evolution and we talked about how this is your favorite movie in the you know in the after party for that so we had to yep. kind of bring you up bring you up to the front bench i guess and uh you know I mean, I was literally just being thoughtful. Like, I didn't know it was a whole bit or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, no, I uh, I think I recently did uh, on a sectarian review podcast a uh, discussion of nostalgia and mirror. Um, and then I have done podcasts on Andre Rublev and on Solaris as well. I've done Solaris four times. So it's like you know, I'm kind of tired of talking about Solaris, honestly. Um, so, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, and uh, I'm sure I'll have a lot to say. Um, and that's it. All right. Noted Tarkovsky scholar, Cedar mm -hmm. Mark. <laughs> and of course, joined again by Ian Miller, basis for Kowloon Wall City and co-host of Rigs of Dad. Uh, What's happening, gentlemen? Thrilled to be here to talk about life. my favorite movie of all time. I'm hyped. Good. It's uh, be, the be, last time you want us for Dead or Alive. That's a very different kind of movie. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. We, weird. Um, uh, what, what do we want to call it? Uh, sci-fi adjacent stuff. Transgressive sci-fi. Like definitely not like your typical genre fare. But I think both go firmly into the what the fuck category. Yeah. No, for sure. Hard to agree. Um, <laughs> this and, and they both I think are movies with uh, that lean heavily on aesthetic. This movie more than really any movie I've seen. Yeah, <laughs> this movie is all vibes, uh, you know. Oh yes, I mean that's <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. A lot of Tarkovsky is just it's about the vibes. Like watching, I mean, I've watched Stalker. This is probably like my fifth or sixth time. I watched it again last night and today in preparation for this. Like, you really like. So this was seventy. Uh, Derek, when did this come out? Seventy nine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was forty some odd years ago the the just the length of the shots the you know relatively few cuts throughout the entire film uh fewer than 100 maybe i'm just throwing a number out there like it's just bonkers to watch something anything made after 2000 uh and then go back to this that has like five minute long takes in it it's just like man it's everything is yeah and it's just the the aesthetic the look of it and everything it's just like it's kind of overwhelming i haven't quite recovered from watching it again today <laughs> Five, five minute long, nearly silent takes. Like. Yeah. Except yeah. for the, the Foley stuff that's incredibly loud and intrusive and makes you jump when they Foley something in. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's amazing it easy. too. Like, like it's just, it's incredible. Like what they do and, and how they distort the sound. And, and it's, it, it's, it's hypnotic. Yeah. The sound wow. design is fucking wild. I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. So I have, a, I have a clip of, uh, I have a clip of, uh, Artemeyev, I guess, is his, is his last name. He's the guy that did the music and the audio for this. There is an actual 25-minute um, long – I'm not playing 25 minutes, but there's okay. a 25-minute long uh, video of him on Criterion <laughs> Channel where he, he delves into all this stuff. Um, yeah, so this, this is him talking about uh, working with Tarkovsky. Ну, это были на перечет. Мне, мне казалось, что Андрей вообще очень закрытый человек. Мне кажется, у него ближайший друг был вот один, вот, с Ланицем Толя, с, с которым они были как-то связаны какими-то такими таинственными музыками. И, кстати, оба умерли от одной же болезни, очень поразительной. Это такая связь мистическая. И, кстати, вот опять возвращаясь к его странной манере работы с композитором, не приходил даже на записи. Yeah, so 
можно сказать, туда и туда, потому что у него одного в голове исполнили все картины. Когда я говорю, что ж не приходишь на запись, говорит, ну это же не концерт. Я говорю, хорошо. Говорит, а вдруг мне понравится, а когда я потом поставим изображение, это будет никуда не годиться. Нет уж, я говорю, лучше поставлю, когда есть. Уж там же я буду решать, нужна музыка или нет. То есть до конца я был в подвешенном состоянии. Это было ужасно. Все эти картины всегда нервозно себя чувствуют. И записываю без музыки. Много, это несколько смен. 4, 5, 6 даже. 8 даже смен. Потом, значит, неизвестно, будет это, не будет, и все это проще. Правда, кстати, вот, ну, однажды он пришел на запись, вот он что такое, когда он снимал, начал сталкер делать, в это время он увлекся философией дзен-буддизма очень, и вот ему померанец, я не забыл, как его зовут, только подарил свою дефицитацию. Это первая дефицитация докторскую писал, по-моему, кандидатскую, по дзен-буддизму вообще был в России. Ее, конечно, не зарубили, естественно. Но он вот эту дистанцию это мне Андрей дал. Я говорю, мне даже за руку Сюю переписал. У меня есть несколько тетрадей. И ну, он мне сам сказал, прощи диссертацию, потому что вот эта картина очень важна, чтобы ты понял Восток-Запад, хотя бы прикоснулся, что это такое. И мы с ним долго беседовали на эту тему. Вроде я так все это понимал. Он как раз говорил, что ему нужна тема, которая, скажем, игралась бы на восточном инструменте но была бы европейская, как бы такое сочетание структур, вместе с тем они, что они не, 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 никогда не, не, эти две реки никогда не сольются. Вот в этом так, я как-то все это буквально понимал, значит, и он, видимо, почувствовал, что здесь что-то я не, 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 что не совсем понимаю, и вдруг пошел на запись. Вот тут я тоже взволновался не на шутку. Там я выписал из Армении одного специалиста, вот такой инструмент есть Тар, но он вообще в Востоке, очень известный инструмент. Вот этот, я сейчас уже забыл этого исполнителя, он сейчас в Америке и очень знаменитый стал, играет тоже, в Голливуде тоже играет. Вот. Забыл. И он очень знает вообще хорошо литературу, если можно сказать, литературу, ну, религиозную музыку всех народов, да, и, скажем, азербайджанскую, что играется на таре, религиозную, вот эти мугамы, ну, все, потрясающе, молодой человек, например. Вот, читал, и вообще выбрал, потому что я не знал, что он такой образованный, вообще по части вот так, знания. Просто ноты, ну, многие народные институты не знают, но он знал хорошо знал, он консерваторию кончил там по скрипке, что не знаю. Вот, и я, значит, Потом порылся у себя в библиотеке и нашел одну мелодию средневековую Пурхери Мороза, посвященную Деве Марии. Это одна 14 века, даже 12, кажется. Андрей показал, говорит, да, это очень, очень подходит. Эскетическая, скупая мелодия. И вот, значит, я сделал инструментовку. Вот Тар играет эту мелодию, восточный тембр. Вот Андрей слушает, потом меня отзывает в коридор, говорит, слушай, совершенно не туда, абсолютно. Ну, главное, чтобы не слышал музыкальный редактор, никто. Он говорит, а я говорю, а что делать, я сейчас не могу переведеть. Ну да, сейчас проведем запись, говорит, я подпишу все документы, скажу, все в порядке, а потом мы сделаем. Так что ну, картину второй раз уже снял, теперь музыка вторая. Ended up like the footage ended up disappearing, and then they had to reshoot it with a second cinematographer. Yeah. And there's a, a kind of um, haunting. I, I grabbed clips from, but there's like kind of a haunting interview with the second cinematographer. It's like the last interview before he dies, and he uh, like right before he dies, like he's clearly like incredibly sick, and he's like telling the story of how all this came together. And 
you know, it's kind of, um, it's, it's fascinating, I think, because, like, this is a movie that obviously kind of uh, famously killed Tarkovsky, right? Like, he, he died not so, uh, <laughs> not so long after this. And other folks did as well. And a lot of it had to do with the where they were filming it, that literally, like, you know, those crazy things where there's, like, the foamy water. That's actual, like, poisons, like, runoff from, like, chemical runoff and stuff that actually poisoned people on set, including the, the director. So yeah. kind of a crazy mythos. Well, thank you. you. <laughs> That's what you get for filming outside of Chernobyl. I mean, you know. yeah, I mean, yeah, by the ticket, take the ride, I guess. But, uh, you know, and, and, and going back and filming. And I mean, there's a lot of like he reshot uh, like the lion's share of the movie um, just because there was a thing with the film stock where they they didn't they developed it wrong and it basically was ruined. And so he just basically reshot like all kinds of stuff. Like it's, it's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking a bit of uh, Suzuki, the way they have like different film stocks for different parts of the film. Because uh, you remember, um, uh, oh, uh, to- to- Tokyo Drifter, where, where we were like the beginning shot in black and white. Oh yeah, yeah. why it was shot in black and white is he had black and white film he wanted to use up before it expired. Um, <laughs> yeah, and like, like very pragmatic. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this is just very very meticulous, like like you know that that sepia just gives mm-hmm. it such a unique feel. Yeah. Uh, and then whenever you get struck by the the, the color of, of that that valley, is just it was, it was you know stunning, breathtaking. It almost. feels a lot like the Wizard of Oz, right? Like <clears throat> the beginning and yes. the end kind of feel like when they go back to Kansas and it's after the uh, Twister has taken shape and it's back to being that like dark sepia tone, and it feels exactly like that, like that same kind of almost like nostalgic, but also like uh, confusing and like disorienting feeling. Yeah, it's like the all the color, the the life, the vitality has been leached out of the the right. the image, like almost literally. So I was able to see um, the recent restoration. I think that for us that you ran the that the promo, um, the the trailer that you ran was for the restoration that ran at uh, Alamo. That have been five or six years ago now, and that was absolutely stunning to see that restoration big projected. Like obviously, I just watched it this most recent time on my you know, pretty decent home system, but man, seeing, seeing it big with the, you know, uh, in a theater with people with the sound was, was something else. I mean, it's, it is a, uh, I mean, breathtaking sounds corny, but uh, I'll say it again. It was just like a, a, a very special experience. It's cool as hell. That, that's the key is with people too. I couldn't even imagine seeing this in a theater. Like yeah. I love this movie, but that's to be insane. Yeah. I, I imagine <laughs> people dealing with those beginning shots that are so long. Um, yeah. I, another thing about this movie, I mean, the, 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 it's, it's actually more Estonian countryside than it is uh, Russian or. Um, the dog or, only spoke Ukrainian. Estonian. Uh, Estonian. Like right. the dog <laughs> only answered to Estonian commands. Right. No Estonian <laughs> dog erasure, please. Thank you. Yeah. It was filmed uh, in uh, mostly in modern, in which is where there was a, a, a couple of abandoned power plants um, that are key to the film. Actually, that's part of what they're shooting in. Um, I think the, the a lot of it's shot in um, an, ab- an abandoned and apparently highly toxic hydroelectric plant. Um, but it's gorgeous. And like, and also the stuff they do with camera tricks, when you actually look at how many, how few uh, scene changes there are, 
and forced perspective and stuff is kind of astounding. It's 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 something to it blows your mind when you're like, oh yeah, he's doing this without digital anything. Like this is all old film, forced perspective. It's all it's all classic cinematography, and it's like that actually kind of blows my mind every time I watch this movie. I'm just like, how are they doing this? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There really and, isn't anything visually quite like it. I mean, there's a few parallels. Yeah, certainly... I, I, go on. I, I was just going to bring I just, up. I almost uh, got through it. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to bring up Chloe Zhao uh, with uh, with, with uh, sure. Nomadland, which came, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. strikingly close. And, and I and I and I, you know, that's the one thing I uh, praise about that movie is is just that that the beautiful shots. Um, although she she plays around a little bit with uh, lighting, you know. As opposed to this yeah. film, which doesn't really, but that's a. There's well, plenty of stuff yeah. to praise about that film, but leftists won't won't do it, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I, I also want to point out, Andy. It looks like you're about to run your tight five at a really cool '80s like comedy store style <laughs> yeah. uh, club. So appreciate that. We got this. Me. We got this fake painted I, brick wall. <laughs> I was I was gonna let that go unremarked until the plugs, but I just I can't I I can't let it go. It's it's, it's uh, yeah it's yeah no. But I think the only the only other parallel I can think of uh, for this sort of era, I come and see kind of a little bit, but that's a wildly different kind of movie. Um, but but just like the utilization of, I mean, the long shots are pragmatic as much as anything else, right? But but like they're so they're so uh, pensive and and um, uh, just kind of draw you in uh, to the point that like I think in my letterbox review I said something like uh, Tarkovsky uh, makes David Lynch look like Michael Bay. And I stand by it. <laughs> uh, but but it's 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 something that I think if even if folks look, I get it, like it's a lot, and some people are gonna be like, you know, I watch movies, you know, late at night. Some people will fall asleep watching it because you know I totally understand, but I think it's incredibly compelling, and it's incredibly compelling in a way that you know, if you sit down and break down the component elements of like it's ostensibly asking the audience to play a giant game of let's pretend. <laughs> it's kind of astounding because it, it it actually works. It works in a way that, you know, you're, you're told certain things and the way it fits together with a very small group of, for the lion's share of the movie, three people playing off each other. I mean, that's like some, some uh, stage play stuff as far as like theater of the mind and, and, but to have the visuals be like matching up to it is astounding. It's too bad people got poison doing it. But anyway, that's a... Yeah, it reminded me a lot of uh, Down by Law. Sure, yeah. Which, you know, uh, a very similar journey, uh, except um, not, not quite as beautiful long shots. Uh, and Roberto Benigni, you know, screaming about ice cream. Yeah, so... the, movie, the movie that it reminds me of, um, I was thinking about uh, Weekend, the Jean-Luc Godard movie. Um, oh, yeah. Which is, you know, uh, the entire, like, most of, like, the lion's share of the movie, they're walking through these kind of vignettes, and there's, like, all these... Uh, random like acts of violence going on in the background, but they just keep walking scene by scene throughout the entire movie. And there's, and there's stuff like, I mean, it kind of reminded me of when they see the car that has like the people in it that originally uh, died in stalker. Like it's very similar stuff to that. Like they keep on walking by car wrecks and they keep on walking by like cannibals. And like, it's just this insane movie that, I mean, that movie, I think had a lot more going on. Like it was absurdist and more uh, anarchical, I guess, but like this, this movie kind of had the same kind of vibe where like they just kept walking. Like, you know what I mean? They kept walking through yeah. Through the zone and like, I mean, there's literally a, an extended scene where it's they're they're trying to take a nap, you know, like yeah. where it's like, wow, this is this, 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 
exactly. And it's riveting too. Like, like you no, know, but it's somehow compelling. That's what I'm saying. It's who like, was sleeping was just so interesting. They're like, hey, you want to watch some dudes trying to fall asleep? No, not really. I don't actually want to do that. But no, it, it, it's good. I, I don't remember what movie we watched recently where they were talking about how they wanted to get away from the fact that uh, every single scene between characters results in like conflict. You know what I mean? Like, con- like scenes are driven by conflict. Yeah. Um, that, that scene kind of reminded me of that uh, that message because the entire thing is just he's trying to fall asleep and like the writer won't shut the fuck up and the professor's trying to go to sleep. <laughs> Keeps like, talking. <laughs> yeah. Like getting paid by the word, literally. It's it's bas- it's the hero's journey. It's basically planes, trains, and automobiles, but just in the Estonian countryside. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Derek, I'm curious as the resident Tarkovsky expert, what is his deal with doors? I noticed this time <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, the the opening shot of the stalker's home and his family, you know, idyllic family life, shot through a door. Um, I've seen the sacrifice a couple times. That's like every shot feels like it's through a door mirror. Tons of this stuff. The doors and water. Like what? Yeah. What are the? Yeah. What's the deal? What's I, the deal I, with the doors? I gotta, throw up the door. I gotta throw up the door background there. <laughs> oh, right. there you go. Fucking well done. Well done. <laughs> there, there's a couple of things. I mean, so one of the things about Tarkovsky that you kind of have to wrap your mind around a little bit is he's both a staunch Orthodox Christian and kind of a communist. Like he, he's like. He is he's slightly dissident in the Soviet era, but he, he sure. he's not he's not an anti-communist at all. Um, and in fact, one of the things that really shows up in nostalgia is he's like complaining that like the, the Soviet world has turned away too much from the rest of the world. And, you know, it's part of his his whole point of that book. I mean, that movie it feels like a book because it's also kind of low key about his dad. Um, uh, the. The stuff with doors is he is obsessed with framing things um, iconically, like specifically iconically. Right. And doors are a great filmic way to do that. And he's also, um, if I was, you know, still an academic, I would be writing a paper on like um, if like the way that he views liminal spaces, because that's, that's what this whole thing is about is the transition. One big liminal space. You're right. The whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The transition between things, the way, the way like dividing lines between worlds break down, fall apart. Um, And I see this theme. It's not so much in his early work, like uh, Solaris or or Rubilev, um, but it's very much in the late work. It's also a big thing in mirror. Um, and in the more surrealistic late movies, uh, you know, one of the things about Stalker's interesting for me because it's like kind of the last movie where Tarkovsky cares that there's a narrative. Mm. Um, like, mm. like after this, yet the stories have a narrative, but you, it's like he doesn't care if you understand what that narrative is, like at all. Um, and in the early movies, he kind of does care. Um, you know, definitely in Ivan's childhood mm. or. Or Andrew Lubrilev. Um a mirror mirror is a big break, right? There's barely a narrative thread through that one. Yeah, it's it's basically like it's almost just autobiographical image play. Like that's pretty much what it is. Uh uh nostalgia has more of a narrative than mirror. Um, but Stalker is kind of tra- the transition movie because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it um 
it has a clear narrative and it's trying to tell you something. And yeah, it's amazing what it does. I think that calling it like asking you to play make believe is actually correct. Um, but it's also interesting and that it doesn't, it's so focused on visual storytelling that it does not really care if you always understand moment to moment what is actually going on narratively. And particularly once you get sure. to the end of the movie, when, when the stalker comes back, it's like, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jarring. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And I think, I think the framing with doors and framing in general, um, there's so many scenes uh, from, from mid to late Tarkovsky to where color contrast is used and design contrast is used. And like these dilapidated, very wet. I mean, he really likes water. Like, I'm always thinking, like, how is he shooting this with old equipment, like standing yeah. in three feet of water? Like, it is a wet ass movie. Yeah, man. Um, and it, that that's true for like all of his movies. They're all wet ass, I guess. Do, um, do they have any puppets in any of his films? No, there's no there's no wet ass puppets. Okay. Uh, <laughs> wop, wop, wop. That's a wet ass puppet. <laughs> Uh, thank you but yeah i think that's what i think that's what's going on there and i also think cool. his his stuff um tarkovsky is like i mean he's the son of a poet that's a, something i think people should probably know about him um and he really loves poetry but he does not think poetry and film should should be it, it should be expressive in the way film is expressive which is visually and so he often tries to frame things so that the images are iconic. And I don't mean iconic as a memorable. I mean, like literally icons, like yep. they're yeah. to encapsulate like certain uh, nodes are important points are important points of transition and to, to draw that out to you. That's awesome. Uh, Thank you for breaking keep, it down. Keep going with it. I just, this is a, uh, this doesn't have any audio. To, well, it has audio as music, but this I, is actually I, I could go, uh, I could keep going with framing this is, devices. This is just like some that. of the, the images of them shooting in water. Wow. Yeah. So, so I told you they were shooting in two or three feet in water. <laughs> miserable. <laughs> Absolutely miserable. Away. Very slight background music so we can keep talking about it, but. But yeah, no, um, well, one of the things about uh, filming in doorways too, also kind of creates a uh, framing uh, for the, for the composition. Uh, this is a trick often done in art, uh, yeah. uh, kind of dates back to like the triptychs in the uh, religious uh, artworks. So I could see somebody being very religious, like uh, Tartovsky was, probably being inspired by kind of uh, that kind of uh, interplay of, of creating the, uh, a type of triptych in his in his uh, film. Um, and it, it also like, you know, divides up the, the frame differently than whenever you're looking out like in a field. Yeah, and it's, I mean, honestly, it makes sense to me that he was a, a, a dude of dogma because if you think about like the whole speech at the end that the stalker's giving about, you know, the lack of faith and, and such. So, and actually, that when I first saw it, it kind of took me by surprise because I don't know. I just, I, I guess I think of like communist era filmmaking and I just don't think of like a, <laughs> like, like a uh, getting stoked on theism. Uh, aspect but and it doesn't have to be a direct like you know relationship with god thing it could be more ambiguous or whatever but it it did kind of pop up out of me out of nowhere for me um and, and the way the later made sense of no 
if you think about what this, you know, guy, like this is a guy, like the stalkers lead the people, they lead the people to the room, but they never enter the room. But then this guy came before and did enter the room and like, oh, you know, stuff, nasty stuff happened, right? So obviously well, there's going to be a certain degree of, if not superstition, belief that's going to be necessary. I, I think also, though, there's a pervasive belief that comes in a lot of late era Soviet stuff that there's kind of this, uh, you know, nobody really believes in anything anymore, right? Like as yeah. the Soviet Union falls around yes. them, um, and like you know, succumbs and is clearly this like decrepit, nobody wants to believe anymore. <laughs> well, it's kind of just clearly like this decrepit empire, right? Like it, it's yeah. burned itself out trying to compete with like the U.S. and they've invaded Afghanistan like the same year, like you know, like all of these different things where this uh, thing is falling apart around them. It starts to be that you know, the first for the first time, it's kind of a, a belief-based um, system, right? Like communism only really works if everyone communally feels like they're. Um, working towards a shared goal and for that to kind of fall apart around everybody there's i think there is like this nihilistic um obsession with trying to either spark some kind of like kind of spark uh you know that feeling like coming back that collectivist feeling or um to just remark on it and say like you know everything is fucking stupid and like i i don't want to be here anymore and like we should all just kind of die and like there's a lot of like very uh, depressing stuff from this time coming out of the. Soviet well, sure. Year. I mean, like, like again, I'm gonna gonna invoke it again. Look, come and see, which is one of the best movies that you know. It's on a small list. I just, I don't want to rewatch that. Thank you. I'm good. Like, it's just, it's just too, it's too much. It's too heartbreaking. It's too demoralizing. It's too, you know, it's like Dancer in the Dark is in that same category of just like, oh, <laughs> Requiem for a Dream. I love that film, but I'm like, oh, do I want to go watch it? No, I do not. Thank you. Well, my my thoughts watching this movie specifically is that like that 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 sense of belief has never been intrinsic in the U.S. Empire, right? Like or the U.S. Right. state, like from the very beginning, that it was clearly not that. So like to have watched this and be like, oh well, you know, all the hopes kind of been drained out of us, and all the belief that you know, um, the the quote just like I, the color was uh, drained out of the tone of the, uh, the beginning ending bars, right? Yeah, but it's like once the future is only a continuation of the present, uh, all its changes loom somewhere beyond the horizon. But now the future is part of the present. Are they ready for this? All they want to do is gobble. Uh, I I don't feel like the U.S. like the U.S. is uh, you know in, in vibe or like the U.S. is um, like economic system was ever based on anything besides that right like we have no. always been hyper capitalist we've always been hyper individualist there was no uh there was never a sense that we uh, are working together towards a shared goal in fact the, the the goal is hey everybody else in like my town that you know i live around like fuck you i'm gonna get mine and climb up this fucking ladder and then like you know yeah. shit on you from the top of the ladder like so that feeling that's kind of uh going away from from uh the stalker at the end of it where he's like you know everyone is coming to that it's like, yeah, well, I, I've never felt anything like that this society is based on anything but that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah this is the, the meme first time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's that the American exceptionalism sort of, yeah, flies. I mean, obviously flies right in the face of of what the, uh, the communist mores might have been. But yeah, that's that's why it um, it hits different for those of us who are brought up in a hyper capitalist state. For sure. And also in, uh, you know, this is, I mean, we're kind of living through the continuation of uh, like Fukuyama's like the, the end of history, right? Like the collapse of the Soviet Union. And like, so that, that idea that like, oh, you know, the, the future is the present. That is very pervasive right now. Like that is just what, what it feels like we're going like in the middle of still. Yeah, man. <laughs> It's it's interesting, uh, you know. You, you talk about the religious elements of Tarkovsky, but there 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 is something very particular about when he picks scripts. Um, 
one thing that I would point out to people is that in all his adaptive work, uh, um, particularly science fiction work, um, he deliberately uh, picks atheist novelist to yeah. convert um, into you know allegories about about religion, and there's two things going on there. One, it's it's going to appease the Soviet film industry. Moss Film's going to be okay with it. Uh, and thus it makes the religious stuff a little bit ambiguous. Um, whereas if you, like in his late films, it's not ambiguous. I mean, even though they barely have a plot, it's not ambiguous at all because he's, even though he's still working with the Soviet film industry, he's not working in the Soviet Union anymore. Um, right. uh, you know, you you think about like, how, how the hell did you get Andrei Rublev, a three-hour epic that uh, on a religious figure uh, made in the in the Khrushchev period uh, when they had to get that script through former Stalinist like uh, um, uh, uh, you know former Stalinist censors um, and how they did that and why he did it is interesting because even the point of Rubilev uh, is in in Tarkovsky's world the Soviet Union. Uh, for all its secularism, uh, is doing something like he would say, like the Tartars did to the, to the, to the the empire, the Russian Empire, which is they are actually like he thinks that like they are doing God's work. Um, so another thing that he tends to do is to take atheist um, scri scripts basically and give them religious connotations to to drive that point home that it doesn't even need to be religious to drive through a religious point. Um, and that's like part of how he selects his scripts. Now his later films, he pretty much writes his own scripts and doesn't really care about narrative and isn't trying to appease Moss film in the same way, but it's there. And it's also, you know, it, it was generally seen that ambiguity was something the Soviet union was totally okay with. I mean, they kind of had an ambiguous stance towards religion anyway. Um, for all the suppression of, re of religion that you hear about, they, uh, they, they weren't, you know, they were vigorous in it in education, but even, even during the Stalin period, they were backing away from like, um, do, you know, uh, really, really, really cracking down on the Orthodox church, which they did in the beginning. Um, and to be completely honest for, for pretty good reasons. Um, but that's how the French Revolution got kind of shut down pretty fast with the Thermidorian reaction too, right? Like they went after the churches too hard and everyone was like, well, maybe this is not what we want to be doing. Well, that's why they lost the peasantry in the Vendée. And actually, like, just as a side note, the bloodiness of the French Revolution is not in the terror. It's in the Vendée Wars. That's when they were like, the the, the revolutionaries were like having to wipe out whole villages of, of like Catholic yeah. peasants, um, which of course eventually really hurt your PR. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not that uh, popular. Yeah. Yeah, sim similarly, in the Crisera War in Mexico, when the when the Mexican revolutionaries went and killed all the priests, and again, for pretty, I don't I don't want to sound like I'm pro killing priests, but like the reasons why they did it weren't <laughs> out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> um, well, also it, like the Parisian the Parisian uh, like intellectual set was not the same by any stretch of the imagination as like the lumpen proletariat of the you know peasantry of the like. Catholic villages, like yeah. I, I think it is the, the the disconnect that you just kind of assume both in the French and Russian Revolution, um, 
that like, oh, well, the peasants are just going to be on board. And then you go out to meet the actual peasants and they're like, no, like, who the fuck are you? Like, I've never seen you well, before. I don't know you. And like, this is, like the czar, like the king is fine. Like, it's this dick landlord that I'm trying to fucking deal with. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting. Actually, you're right about that. Although what's interesting to get really into the nitty gritty of, uh, of Soviet history, the peasants were on board in the beginning, actually, like pretty strongly. In fact, uh, the, the Bolsheviks actually had to change some of their stances, including what the dictatorship of the proletariat was to the dictatorship of the proletariat and peasants, because they actually had outside of Moscow, Moscow, more peasant support than they had proletarian and raw numbers. Um, yeah. Well, I've, I've been listening to revolutions like the Mike Duncan podcast on the whole mm-hmm. thing. And I would like, but they also had like, like, like centuries of like the going to the villages kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where like they, they couldn't connect to the, to the peasants whatsoever. I, I think that as like, it's it's clear that like an empire is failing uh and things kind of change and you're like constituencies change right like people are going to war or whatever and like peasants are going to war and they're like wait a second like maybe i don't want to come back to this fucking plot of land and like maybe i want to you know figure out what else is out there <laughs> i was actually kind of surprised by some of the religious uh stuff that was brought into the film because um Growing up, uh, I was back on track. <laughs> I, I was actually. Come on, uh, gotta... Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, it's going to be me this time. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're as shocked as anyone, Andy. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but no, I, I uh, was raised, uh, uh, you know, uh, hardcore Christian by uh, crazy people, and um, uh, we, we, you know, we were taught that the Soviet Union would kill you if you had a Bible. Right. You know that that, that that's you know. Uh, so, so, so it's kind of fascinating to actually see like, no, you know what? The church lied to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and to do that, I think I don't, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah, lying. <laughs> yeah, see, see, see our reading of Benedetta. Uh, but I think that the, like, I, I didn't grow up in a theist family. I, I, I kind of was left to my own devices, which meant that I studied all these religions, uh, as history and as sort of like, oh, what did, what did people get out of this? Oh, hmm. And came at it from that perspective, meaning the most organized religion and theism is kind of astoundingly jarring to me uh, and, and still kind of tends to be the case when I don't know from the get go that that's what it is. Like, I, I think it's we talked again uh, about the Verhoeven film, about it having like that that Catholic thing. Right. Like that's not a thing that I intrinsically get. I have to like sort of like work to understand it just based on my my uh, background for it. But I think it's interesting that if you think about, again, historically where everything was at, I also think it's cool that it's not explicitly clear what time this movie takes place in. It could be like post-apocalyptic. It could be like the same year that it was made. Like it's very kind of out of time in that way. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that if you think about what the stalker is and what he does and why it would be important for him to have, you know, faith, whether it's like, you know, uh, theist faith, whether it's uh, you know faith and like just something greater than himself and why it would be important for this thing that he not only is devoting his life to, but it's actively shortening his life by doing it. Yeah, let's be clear, because he—that's the whole interaction with uh, his wife in the beginning, right? Where it's, where it's like, hey, and his kids going mutated, out again, mutated huh? by it. His kid, like, it's it's gotten into him so much that the kid actually, yeah, psychokinetic, yeah. you know, telekinetic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That scene at the end where you see her, Surprise. Do this, uh, <laughs> yeah, I actually the last time I talked about this movie, like, spent an hour trying to figure out what is actually really being implied by that scene in the end when the kid is uh, it's, a, it's a sequel to it's like a stephen king prequel yeah like, like 
you know, it's, it's, it's like the longest intro to Carrie ever. Right. Um, <laughs> well, I have a I have a clip about the the final scene. Um, I, I think that's that's because because here's what I would say. There's enough of a mind fuck going on in here and enough of like a big vibe situation that you wouldn't need that. But when it throws that into the end, you're like, whoa, what? But then if you think about what the zone is and again, what the zone does to people and stuff, it actually completely makes sense. But it comes out of you seemingly out of left field because you're just like, I did not expect that. Yeah. And the stalker <laughs> seems to have that power, too, because he blew up those light bulbs. Hmm. Yes. And he's a mermaid. No, I'm just kidding. You're doing so great, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, story as far as the final, uh, final stalker. Здесь вот приносится поезд, и мы слышим какие-то там знакомые вроде какие-то интонации, под стуком колес. Там девятая симфония звучит биткоина, ну такие шлягеры известные, как мы шляги, шлягеры симфонические. Что там, Зе, ну я забыл, выбираю. Сейчас не припомню, составили список. Известные вещи, которые подсознательно за это сработают на человека, потому что все их слышали всегда по радио, они уже дневно играются. Вот, я как раз спросил, для чего, для чего тебе надо? Ну, ты знаешь, это просто такое ощущение, что да, это у меня тоже есть. Когда идет или в поезде едешь, или близко проносится поезд, какой-то музыку сейчас слышишь там. Под этим грохлем, организованным еще этим реалитмическим стопом колес, я тоже говорил, что какую-то шоу, какую-то музыку, как в водопаде, если долго слушать, то начинаешь что-то выхватывать ухом какие-то мелодические обороты воды и шума. Вот это просто он хотел бы, никакого знака не имеет. Но не то, что это цивилизация, куда несется никуда. Нет, просто такой странный такой эпизод, который вот работает. Потому что каждый весь воспоминание видел об этом звуке, и каждый чуть-чуть сообщил о что-то там случится. That's intense. So Damn. the music that they were playing over that clip, though, that was from the the music, the the, mm -hmm. the yeah. whatever that audio was. That was from the train trip into the zone, though, was it not? Am I misremembering that? I, it's, it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's what I thought. But so they're talking about the end, though, as the right with the ode to joy. Yeah. And I, I at least think I was like crazy as a kid because I would hear like music in the sounds of like uh, you know yeah. like rushing water, or I would hear music in the sounds of like a fan moving or something, and like. Sometimes, like if I stared at it long enough, it was like kind of almost like transform into like this auditory thing. So, like to hear them express that in like the sound of a train is kind of crazy. Mm. Or, or maybe I'm just you know maybe I'm just getting the same brain rot. For me, Stomp kind of ruined that. But yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is the second episode that we've invoked Stomp. I think I think we did briefly. Oh, well, you weren't on the episode when we when we did Chicago. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's sound is a huge part of this of this film like and i think i think the music in it is fantastic i couldn't it's like one of those things i couldn't think of it being anything other than what it is really too like it's perfect perfectly suited and and uh, it goes a lot with how russia's kind of envisioned itself uh throughout mm -hmm. history right like as the, the point between as the liminal space between um uh europe and uh and, and asia right so like yeah. kind of between these two worlds sometimes acting as a, a hyper nationalist force where um, you know, they're like, oh, we need to keep the Asian hordes out of uh, out of Europe. But other times acting as kind of this, um, uh, you know, uh, ethnocentric belief that they've kind of created a special uh, place for themselves, almost like a zone, you know what I mean? Where like you know, these two um, cultural fusions kind of come together. So, you know, to have them actually explain that, like, oh, well, this East-West economy and he's studying Buddhism, which, uh, you know, I think a lot of people that actually were 
really into Christianity, like, you know, hardcore Christianity, like my grandpa was as like a spiritual thing. And like a lot, like a lot of times people direct, direct themselves, I think, towards Buddhism uh, for parts of that, which is because it's kind of the most spiritual, I think, of, of religious philosophies rather than, uh, you know, religious, like theistic. As a Buddhist, I might actually disagree with you on that, but, but uh, I don't. I, I do think actually, particularly in the context of the Soviet Union, you have to remember that like, uh, like the Buddhist world butts right up to it. Like, um, yeah. I mean, in, in fact, like uh, uh, certain kinds of Vajrayana and Mahayana Buddhist uh, communities are in the were in the Tsarist Empire and were also in the Soviet Union. Um, and there are religious practices specific to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, such as hesychasm, that look a lot more Buddhist than they do anything in the Catholic Church. And so hmm. that that is something that uh, uh, gets picked up on by a lot, even a very, very conservative, very, very anti-eclectic uh, uh, Orthodox Christians, like you know, even like Father Seraphim Rose. Uh, and if you know anyone in the Father Seraphim Rose, you should run. They're reactionary. But um, uh, but he writes a lot about that kind of stuff too, and um, in the normal way that you'd expect it, it's like Buddhism is like this degenerate pagan form of this sincere uh, spirituality. But you can learn this and this and this from it. Um, Tarkovsky's interesting, uh, you know, in, in that way because he's not. I, I I don't want people to read him as a Orthodox Christian reactionary, even though he is Orthodox Christian. Like he's. Um, one, uh, if you watch his movies, you know he's not a prude, for one thing. Um, uh, and two, um, he's his vision of religion is a little bit bigger than just orthodox yeah. dogma. Um, yeah, even Stalker, you had the uh, the, the train orgasm at the beginning, so you know, uh, <laughs> definitely not a prude, yeah. Um, uh, so it's you know, I, I think that's to get into the film, though. I mean, when he goes into the, the zone, there is so much going in there. And one thing I like about that train soundtrack, it between that and the color shift, it it's so it's a it's it's both subtle and incredibly obvious, like how like we are shifting worlds here. Like you get that yes. rhythmic pattern and then you get the splash of color and you're like, OK, we're now on something different. Like yep. exactly. Um, and, and, and the sequence is so amazing too, actually. But anyway, we already talked about that. It's gorgeous. <laughs> uh, but like bringing kind of literature as a, like art and literature as a force, right? Like as a spiritual force, but also as like a, a um, like a, a very uh, a trend, like a possibly transcendent force, but also a very uh, grounded and like like the speech that the writer gives, right? Where he's like, "I wanted to change the world, but they changed me," and um, like you know, I found myself changing to suit what they wanted, which kind of. It almost feels like, uh, you know, there's so many Soviet writers and like that kind of I, I feel like as as the Soviet Union fell, like the messaging changed. And like so that as, as kind of a, um, a literary force. And then on top of that, like the professor as like the scientific, um, you know, the ways that we like kind of botch science and whether we want to like um, either like capitalize on it for our own gain or whether we want to uh, exploit it or whether we want to just destroy it because we don't yeah, just know, blow it up. Just literally blow yeah. it up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's kind, of, it's kind of two pretty fascinating um, uh, forces, I think. Like, if you're looking at them in terms of like allegorically, like to bring into the zone. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Tarkovsky, you see this in The Sacrifice, Rublev, and certainly with the writer here, like he's concerned or he's interested in exploring the role of the the artist, you know, we'll call him, or, you know, the writer in this case, um, in society. And I, to me, that's what, that's what Rublev was all about. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I found it so compelling. It's like, what, what is, what is my role? What is my responsibility to my yeah. fellow person? Um, and really like you get to, you get to go deep on that in this one with the, 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 in the persona of the writer. And I found it, uh, I, I continually to find it, continue to find it fascinating. Yeah. The way he, I mean, ultimately he's searching for inspiration and meaning and, and kind of like trying to rearticulate what it means for him to be a writer, to be an artist. And that's a, yeah, that there's certainly the idea of like everyone coming to this place for their own needs and their own desires uh, is unique, but that's, I think that's one that's relatively timeless. Right. I mean, I right. mean, haven't we all been in that situation now, now and again? Right. Yeah. I do think it's interesting though. And for us, this goes back to your point um, earlier about being at, you know, on the, the, at the very tail end of the Soviet empire um, is that Tarkovsky is also interested in what is the creative person, the artist, the writer's responsibility to, you know, the other yeah. people in society, his his fellow man, for lack of a better term, uh, you don't find uh, Western European or North American um, directors or artists investigating that much because we don't feel like we have a responsibility to our fellow humans. Yeah, I mean, it's a commodity, right? Like you're producing a commodity, everyone else consumes your commodity and yep. then, you know, gives you money for it. Like that's kind of... Um, <laughs> Yeah, rather than working to like shape a society or working to uh, create a, like a larger project, which um, is something I think that did get grappled with in, in you know throughout the Soviet Union altogether. Like um, you know yeah. what what should the role of as they say in this like intelligentsia be? What should the role of the writer be? What should the role of the yeah. artist be? Is it just to um, you know c continue uh, propagandizing for the state, or uh, is it to um, or is it a, a product for consumption? And I don't think we've ever really had that question because we're like, no, it's just the I, I I'm gonna push back on that. Okay. Um, I I think I think we view a lot of this stuff now through the post 1950s lens of of American art, and I I actually do think there was a pretty strong uh, civic discussion about the role yeah. of artists in the early 20th century, partly because a lot of them were were socialist are are fascist frankly but both of those sure. people either whether left or right do have a communitarian ethos that is absent now um i Norman think Rockwell, i guess is one that... yeah yeah I, I think uh i think when you look at um you know I, i'm not big on the conspiracy theories about uh how extensive the cia's pr uh, propagation of acts of expressionism is are there are there uh, somewhat tangentious? Uh, um, well, I shouldn't say conspiracies because it's true, but the effect in which it had um, on on uh, say the MFA program because yeah. the money that the OSS slash uh, CIA actually donated to that was somewhat scant, and they also funded people protesting it. It was actually pretty funny. Yeah. Um, it, it, but they did. I mean, they did fund uh, Jackson Pollock, right? Like they have the big, yep, big directly funded Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Iowa yeah. Writers Workshop as well. Wasn't that another yep. beneficiary? Yeah, the reason and, uh, why Arthur they did Schlesinger. that. 
writing about like the history of all of this. Like they were funding him and like the and the nation at one point and like. Wait. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you deal with the Congress for Cultural Freedom, they were like funding everybody but like five people um, and also people protesting those people. I mean, like the CIA OSS was giving money to to everybody, I mean, including Gloria Steinem and, and William yep. Buckley. I mean, like yep. it's 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 crazy what they're trying to do. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, to give a little bit of credence to that, the 1950s and 60s after the Congress for Cultural Freedom is when you see art move from a public sentiment thing where an artist can make a, 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 a some kind of money to with Pollock and the abstract expressionist to an investment mechanism because that is what fine art is. Yeah. And yes. that's the shift we live in now. Um, and then popular art, I mean, even so much as like proletarian art uh, was was hyper commodified at that point. Um, that's also when you start seeing like the rise of uh, patent law really really affecting stuff i mean it's not patent it's, it's writing credits but you see like the ability to purchase other people's songs and hold on to them for way longer than you think should be uh, possible um and, and stuff like that that really happens in the 50s i think when you read american artists discussing between like 1870 to about 1930 it's not like that at all it does you're kind absolutely of right Derek. yeah yeah, the the post the, post McCarthy stuff, I guess, is is how yep. I would revise my thesis. Yeah, there's also the the uh, the midbrow um, art that that uh, appeared in like uh, Time magazine and whatnot, and and with uh, like Saturday Evening Post, you know, going mm -hmm. back to Norman Rockwell, um, uh, who you know uh, uh, we we learned uh, recently about his uh, his homophobia in the '60s, but anyways. Um, uh, he, he um but but the, the there was a whole like section of art for the people and uh uh if you, if you actually go back and look at like a lot of Pollock for example um it was it, there's a there's actually a famous uh, uh Rockwell painting of a guy standing in front of a Pollock not getting it um and, and you know that's kind of a great example of like uh, to me middle brow art uh and, and what we're kind of we're also kind of missing which yes it is commercialized but like we, we kind of lost that when uh uh we, with the advent of like uh more television uh the death of print that kind of stuff well cool. fdr's uh administration also funded a lot of different stuff as like kind of a, a state propaganda tool to sell the new deal to people and yeah. i remember i, I uh, did a documentary about um uh like a short documentary for michael brooks where we had harvey k explaining uh the new deal um, to, like, you know, for like an hour or whatever, and we cut it down to like a 12 minute documentary. And I remember like, we were like really being blown away by like archive.org and how many, um, like films, like what, like well, well shot, uh, oh, I don't know what happened to Ian, but like well, well shot films that, uh, like FDR kind of made as a, as like a state propaganda or not him, but like funded as like a state propaganda tool to explain different, um, programs to, uh, you know, to the people. Yeah. Well, the problem I, is, is when you sit in the zone long enough, you disappear like Ian just did. To final comment on that, we can transition back to the movie. But I, I do, I do want to like talk a little bit about this because in the FDR period, there were communists involved um, because of the because of the Popular Front. Now, ultimately, whole different podcast. You can hear me rant about the, the barriers of the Popular Front another day. But one thing it did do 
is is for example the the, the folk ox archive was really pushed by by people who were more or less aligned with the cp uh with the cpusa and the democratic coalition in the mid-40s um so that the people's art was recorded and the other thing they did well into the 50s and this is why like every black artist that you ever know even when they became a reactionary late in life has some relationship to the cpusa in the 50s it's because they were literally the only people funding um funding black arts and one of the things that the ira workshop and stuff was aimed to do uh as far as like why the oss was supporting it was to move people out of these community arts groups uh you know the most famous the most famous and later ones like the beats but you think about all the stuff and like soho and um and Hyde Ashbury and all that stuff before that, going all the way back into the 19th century, uh, they thought that was a hotbed for radicalism and for the leadership of of socialist movements, and they wanted to get them into the academy. And then, unfortunately, after after the 60s, the leftists themselves went into the academy, yeah. um, which is the only reason we associate college with the left. I think, honestly. Um, and that's something to, that's also why I think all this stuff feels very like, oh, we, we live in a neoliberal hellscape and we always have. Uh, one of the interesting things about the early 20th century um, is that we were promoting this stuff both to work with, but also as an alternative to the Soviets. And once the Soviets, I mean, by the middle of the Cold War, the, like we don't really think the Soviets are a threat in the 60s unless they nuke us. So yeah. by that time, we're not trying to compete with them anymore. Like particularly and, and after the makes it kind of clear after the uh, you know after the Cuban Missile Crisis, like oh like I'm not I'm I scared the shit out of myself here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and uh, I think that's you know that that's an interesting conundrum. I conversely to get to turn it back to this, one thing you can say about the Soviet Union is it produced a lot of great artists, but it did underinvest in them in this time period in in specific. Um, and uh, it was one of the things that uh, that Tarkovsky would often complain about um, sincerely. In fact, part of nostalgia's uh, about this is that the Soviet Union wasn't trying to really push its vision of the world to the world in dialogue with it at all. Um, and, you know, that's weird for a guy who's a, like, you know, a, a, a crypto devout Orthodox Christian to say, but it seemed to be like he thought like, no, Russian culture uh, and he saw this as a Russian problem, even more than a Soviet problem. Like he's like, Russian culture is too inward looking. Uh, we need to be in dialogue with the world. And he was very frustrated with the Soviet film industry because it wasn't even even though, you know, Soviet movies got sent to cans and blah, blah, blah. It, he, he did not feel like that the Soviet Union was really trying to to even, you know, kind of compete ideologically in uh, beyond maybe some sympathizers in Western Europe and in the Eastern Bloc. I mean, this is this was a problem he really had. So, you know, um, yeah, this movie is interesting too because he didn't do this well, outside of the Soviet Union. So, he made this yeah. for somewhere between a, a million and uh, a million and six million. Uh, I guess. Ruples. I, I yeah. Well, probably ruples. I. I, I mean, I. Yeah. I, I just just to just to put a tag on the podcast that just occurred on this podcast is that uh as fascinating as all that all that is like it's almost irrelevant to the film uh mm -hmm. to a certain degree because the film is so good at drawing you into 
its world and its logic. And again, I'll go back to the extended game of let's pretend. And while there are visual cues for things, as, as the aforementioned, uh, you know, different uh, cinematography, color tones, and uh, even film stock, it's all done in a way that there's a very clear articulated purpose. And I think it's interesting that of the three people that are there, you've got like the professor, you got the writer, and you have the stalker. And they each kind of represent different facets of, uh, of humanity and like different things that they may or may not be... <laughs> That they may or may not be uh, looking for, and in the you, it's given mostly as exposition. But when you hear about what's a porcupine is the name of the is the of the yeah. stalker beforehand, that like it's here's a cautionary tale. Here's a cautionary tale of how it could go badly for you. And as far as myth making goes, you know, really, I, I think it's where it cement, that cements the purpose. The cements the idea that it's being a science fiction movie because it it definitely has. And in a way that, like, there's not laser guns shooting off, you know, there aren't UFOs flying around or anything, but it absolutely positively is beyond just like a vibe movie. Like, it's very firmly in the era of science fiction, but uniquely so in a way that that a lot of movies would not have the the uh, the ability to do, nor necessarily the interest, because the whole point of it is to just make this almost like extended uh, liminal space painting that kind of evolves into other things and, and to have the patients be part of it. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I, I guess, uh, they kind of explained to tie the two conversations together is that I, I think that it, it is uniquely Soviet though, in, in the sense that, you know, there's, I mean, there's a relig- religiosity obviously to the idea of the stalker, right? Like, but there's also like an ideological component component to that of the stalker where, um, you know, the cautionary tale is that if, if you're uh, chosen to be part of this realm, you can only like, you can't enter the room. Like you can't see the, what's actually inside of your essence, right? Like you are meant. You're to the Moses. You can lead them up to the promised yeah. land, but you cannot enter. Yeah. And sure. and for him to have discovered that, like inside of himself, right, is just pure deed. I mean, I do think that it plays uh very very, like this time period, this this moment in time for the Soviet Union, this uh you know the decline of empire, like the the kind of revealing to the people who they actually are. Um, I, I think it is it is related to all of these questions about, you know, what is the purpose of, of all of this? What is the purpose of art? Like, what is the, you know, and, and the, there's this conversation that goes on through, you know, the writer having with himself pretty much throughout the entire thing with, you know, very, very, very rarely getting somebody to tell him to shut the fuck up, like the professor or something, where he's, you know, he's he's been um, like the people have failed him, kind of, you know what I mean? He feels like the people have uh, have changed him to, to, to shape him into them rather than him like rather than the writer getting any kind of uh you know changing the world and and it does it's this moment of non-belief for an entire society and i i just you know i just it, it's fascinating to me because i i think that i i mean as varn was saying like with uh i mean i guess things were a little bit different in the early 20th century but like at least by the time of like reagan and everything like there's no there's no belief here like we the mm-hmm. belief have been so far stripped uh in like in like the u.s empire that we've gotten to this point where like it feels like there's never been any belief and, and for Russia, I think when you actually like listen to people in Russia now, like it's, it seems the same way. Like it's this uh, neoliberal dystopia all around the fucking globe. Like end of yeah. history, baby. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, to, to tie into this a little bit. I think it's funny because one thing I love about Soviet cinema, cinema is it has a higher tolerance for slowness. But one of the interesting things about this movie is the official Soviet film critics actually chastised it for not being action-packed enough. 
So it wasn't just the 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 West. It was like this is too slow. I mean, if, particularly when you compare this movie, like this movie comes out in 1979, and in the United States, what we think of as like the blockbuster is built, and yeah. like it's the two years, years after Star Wars, it. right? It's exactly. Star Wars. It's it's Jaws. It's it's all the early Spielberg films. E.T. Close Encounters. Yeah. Right. You know, and um, I mean, we we can wax poetic about like the early 70s and that auteur cinema period and there's there are problems with that too but i, I you kind of think like you know i was like why didn't this film do well in in the west uh because some of the other tarkovsky films did um rel in the art house circuit this stuff sure. this film didn't even do that well in the art house circuit when it actually came out it did well in the soviet union in fact it seems to have been more popularly well received than uh than actually critically well received which is wild to think about when you watch this film now <laughs> yeah, what were those theaters like exactly yeah it's like so like the soviet audience was really into slow dull uh i mean and i i say dull here because tarkovsky actually deliberately wanted the beginning to be dull um yeah. uh, ponderous long shots that require immense amount of attention that you're going to have to watch multiple times to understand, like in a time period before there are DVDs or even video tapes to really go back and rewatch something like that's a yeah. lot to ask of an audience. And apparently the Soviet audience was totally willing to, to pay it, even as the official critics at, uh, at, at Goss Kino, which is sort of the official Soviet um, f uh, film guild, uh, so Moss Films of producers, but uh, Goss Kino was their like critics guild or whatever, and they did not like this movie. It, it's it's just funny to me because I'm like, I I can't. I mean, I can imagine an American film exec saying the same thing Goss Kino did. This movie doesn't have enough action. It's too slow. Um, and I want to tell you what what uh, uh, what what uh, Tarkovsky said in response to that. Yeah, the film actually needs to be slower and duller at the start so that the viewers who walk into the wrong theater have time to leave before the main action begins. Absolute king shit. <laughs> I just want to meet wow. the, uh, the the Soviet guy who was like really stoked about this movie. Like, like you know, sitting there in the audience going, yeah, you, you sleep, you sleep, you people. Go sleep. <laughs> Let that dog sniff you. Oh, man. It's, well, it's so think, wild. You think the reason that uh, critics kind of panned it, I mean, it showed too much of the writer and like the, the superficiality of uh, like writers and that that kind of um, profession and who those people actually are. Whereas, you know, if you're watching this as just a person uh, in the audience, right, that's just like a normal not critic, uh, you might be catching up on an, on an ethos that you might feel yourself about, you know, the lack of belief and wanting to believe in the system again. Whereas like the writer who watches this, and it was like, dude, you shit on writers for like three hours uh, and like and talk about how superficial they are and like, you know, how much they kind of just want like the life where there's like a lot of women and like they pretend to be tortured and like, but they really have no actual purpose. And, you know, they've been commodified by everything. Like I can see being a writer being pissed off by this movie and be like, wait, what the fuck? Like, I don't want to hear that about myself. They're probably hitting too close to the core. <laughs> I, get, I get that, but that doesn't ring true for me because usually people like that, like, even if you're um, taking them to task, they're just so happy to have attention be paid. That right. They'll be, you know, e even if you're criticizing them, 
you're talking about them and so they'll be satisfied uh, yeah, well i mean there's yeah. definitely some there's definitely writers like that but there's also writers that are so self-serious that like fair enough you know, fair like, enough like, yeah yeah <laughs> i mean the writer is probably the the least sympathetic of the of the three main characters but it's which I also find interesting with that little bit of trivia that I threw at you guys that Tarkovsky's dad was a writer, a poet in specific. And actually, uh, a lot of his later movies about how much he loved his dad. But this one's like, this one's like, oh, you're really coming down hard on writers. And I haven't found like what the what was prompting that. I do wonder if I mean, like many things in Soviet uh, in Soviet films, like he's really just annoyed with other Soviet writers and. You know, I do think there's a reason why we don't have a whole lot of like good Soviet literature from the 70s and 80s. Like, there's not a lot of it. Um, uh, I mean, we so, do have the Strugatsky brothers. Yeah, we but do. That was sort of like genre fiction. That was kind of pulpy. Right. I mean, and you have Stanislav Lem, even though it's Polish. Um, and, um, but again, you know, both the Strugatsky brothers and Lim hate Tarkovsky's version of the movie. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the funny. I think that. The Strakowski brothers are more ambivalent. Lim hated Solaris. That rules. Um, so it's, I find that, that makes very me like the movie much more, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's also uh, Zelaski, right? I mean, like you know, just for on the Silver Globe alone, which he didn't really get done as much as it. He finished up what he could with it, and that came in '88. But look at like Possession. I mean, there's a lot of like amazing, great filmmaking around that time period. But hey, how have we gone this far and not talked about the dog? All right, we I gotta, gotta, I gotta we talk about the dog. This is how yeah, I brought up the dog. We did talk about the dog in the beginning. I said it was an Estonian dog, but uh, this is this is, this is uh, that's not Alex discussion. Kidman. That's an aside. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce this guy's name. This is the second uh, AD or the second uh, cinematographer slash AD they hired to uh, uh, talking about the dog. We call him Lumpy. Hey, Lumpy, tell us about the dog. Самое замечательное, что у нас была собака там, 
German Shepherd, Estonian Shepherd, what's the difference? It's a yeah. good boy. That's the important thing. Yeah. I, I love that it's just such a, uh, you know, and there's a dog, and the dog is now in the film. Great. Why wouldn't she? Yeah, of course. Considering that, like, no that women dog. were allowed in the zone, so the dog is. Anyway, sorry. We got to cast Forrest, that dog, kid. Forrest, sorry, was that the... Um, was that from that doc that you were talking about earlier? Is that the yeah, original so cinematographer? Yeah, that, that used to be his like kind of last interview that he gives. He seemed pretty sick. What he's, uh, yeah. you know, kind of gnarly. So he's like the last one out of like the seven of them. Uh, there's a picture of like seven people that work on the film. He's the last one that's alive in like 1996. Um, that's well, Then you see the image of like the guy lying down with his face in water, and you're like, well, yeah, that you know. Yeah. <laughs> Just sucking down those PCBs by the PPM. Right, exactly, just inhaling them. Yeah. Gnarly. Woof. So, so hey, you guys were talking about liminal spaces before, and uh, there was a, a, a film that came out a couple of years ago based on a book that I absolutely loved. It's the Alex Garland film, Annihilation. Annihilation. Which I have always Love thought it. the book uh, and the film, obviously, owe huge debts to stalker i didn't love i mean i'd love the southern reach books i especially love annihilation but i'm wondering if anybody has thoughts about uh stalker versus annihilation and the 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 long sort of trail that it's had on uh hollywood films or western films I in was, general i was actually thinking about this today um coming in i was like what movies have stalker influenced and i was like annihilation and then star trek generation but um, which is a weird <laughs> argument to make. But I'm actually sincere about that. Like, so, uh, the Nexus is totally a Solaris ripoff. Um, uh, but and the stuff about zones and weird zones and liminal spaces is also pure uh, Stalker and Solaris. Um, the, but with Annihilation, I think that what's interesting is the. Um, <laughs> Damn it, Ross. <laughs> Ross. Um, First of all, uh, secondly, how dare you? Yeah, what's interesting is um, in Annihilation, there's a lot more with like, you know, what does it mean to be transformed into something outside yourself and not know it, which is not mm. a part of this movie. True. Um, uh, but I do think it picks up some of the same 
you know, concepts with the zone and the zone altering you in a key way mm-hmm. and what that, what that, what the implications of that are. Uh, uh, the Alice Gollum film Annihilation, I really like. I, I however, I kind of wish that they would make the other books in the Southern Reach because it really changes the movie to know where that goes. Yeah, but, I think they they kind of didn't they kind of hamstring themselves by sort of bolting on the end of the trilogy to the end of Annihilation. Like I don't know yep, how, where you did. go from there. Yeah, they kind of jump to the very end, just be like, okay, yeah. we're done, and I'm like. But you're not done. Like, oh. there's a whole lot you need. But uh, it's, you know, and, you know, I normally defend, you know, I think Garland is uh, is a pretty great filmmaker as far as, like, watchable uh, semi-avant-garde movies go. I mean, I've, he's always been in that kind of interesting space of popular directors who are clearly okay with art house stuff. Yeah, it's but, never boring with him, for right. sure. Yeah. Um, uh, it's... But, you know, I think about this because I was thinking about, like, well, okay, what else has does this movie influenced? And I, I say surprisingly, not a lot. Um, I mean, despite its key, I mean, like, every, I, you know, even though we talked about how ambivalent it was received, both in the West and in Moscow when it came out, um, it's with, with critical concern. Almost everybody agrees it's one of the best movies ever made now. Um, yeah. In retrospect. Yeah, in retrospect. Um, the... And yet, when I like think about like where does this show up, even as like you know, I can find, I can watch popular movies and find all kinds of like Kubrick references where someone's just literally ripping off a scene. Mm-hmm. I don't find that with Tarkovsky movies. Actually, there's not a whole lot of people even trying to mimic him. Like it's, and I think that's part nobody of why he's, into, nobody wants to get into the fucking toxic water anymore. That's well, yeah, that's true. Fair. I mean, if you. <laughs> Uh, but uh, you could talk. You could CGI that toxic water now. Um, but uh, it is interesting when I think about that. When I think about like comparing him to like the person he wanted to compare himself to, which is uh, which is Igmar uh, Bergman. Um, I see Bergman all over the place in, in film signatures, and yet I yeah. don't see Tarkovsky much. Like I don't think many point. people try to like mimic him at all. And hmm. the Alice Garland film is interesting. To, to bring that up because if it's mimicking Tarkovsky, it's because Jeff Vandermeer is not because Alice Gollerin is totally agree with that. Yeah. It's that's straight out of the source material. Right. Like, and, and, and that, and that zone, I think it's interesting and sort of maybe not uniquely American, but distinctly American in that it is a, uh, an environmental horror story. Um, yeah, it's like you know, like uh, Cronenberg's body horror. That's environmental horror. Yeah, I, I, and and if I may, just because I saw this, I saw Annihilation finally for like six weeks ago, so mm-hmm. it's like pretty fresh in my mind. And I remember one of the things I said at the end of it was like, "Wow, there's a lot of movies that do in Aliens, some more than even like fewer still that will do like an Abyss, but like I can say both of those things very convincingly, and then also Stalker, like, and it's it, I think, and I've never read these books." So I, I can't say for sure. Apparently you fellas have, but I thought it was genuinely unique and interesting because of that, because again, Varn, as you were saying, like as for as influential and well-regarded of a movie as it is, there isn't, the influence seems to be like, you know, tacit. There isn't like a lot of stuff like on screen for it. And I, that's the first movie I've ever seen where I'm like, wow, this kind of feels like that mm-hmm. Tarkovsky movie. Like, 
and, and and it's an action movie and there's like you know all these women running around with like like guns like blasting weird creatures too and it's like this is like a culmination of many things that i like put together it's great our our distractibility though now you know what i mean like it, it feels like uh things need to be action-packed and like a, a kind of three-hour deliberate um you know any kind of homage to that right like when nothing really i mean throughout this movie hap- i mean a lot happens like character conflict wise but not a lot happens uh you know action wise it, it does seem like we've moved far away from what you know whatever uh tarkovsky is trying yeah. to but what i would also say is look at slow tv right yeah it, it does exist it's in different formats well, yeah. you know what you know what the difference is though i think uh conan is slow tv is made for one media market and uh big budget movies are made to play in every media market on earth now yep. and so the context and patience has to be minimal yeah um and don't you know, bore us get to the chorus yeah i mean and so and so i i i wonder because i was thinking about that too because i was like huh um is it that if you mimicked what is uniquely tarkovsky now uh, not only would it seem obvious because like there's not many filmmakers who do what he does yeah. like Bergman's i got Criterion channel too bro i get it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly um but also it's it wouldn't i mean it's hard to imagine the kind of like asking modern editors to be like we're gonna make a three-hour movie and there's gonna be the plot i can summarize in a paragraph right uh but you really need to pay attention to all of it because if you don't pay attention to all of it you're not going to understand it not because you need to know the plot because that's not really the important thing you need to pay attention to like that's a real hard sell (laughs) like the movie I think you could get it. I mean, what's weird is I think if you were going to see it now, it would be on TV. It'd be some weird, like, experimental television one-off. Yeah, I like, would say uh, that there was a TV show that, that just uh, got canceled uh, that kind of comes close, um, Debris, which, mm. which I, uh, I loved that that one season uh, that, that we got of that show. It was like The X-Files, but 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 more meditative and, and uh, like this. Um, and... and uh, uh, and the, the ending of the, the season was great, too. It just, you know, um, wondered where it was going to go. And, you know, we'll never know. But uh, well, back in days of yore, there probably would have been a movie, right? That's how we like, talk about, like, you know, things that are very long. Like, can they be, like, serialized, episodic, uh, prestige TV, or whatever we call all the various thousands of streaming services that people look yes. at things on, right? Yeah, I find I find limited series interesting for that reason, right? Like, you can put yeah. you know, hours and hours of stuff that you would into a movie into like a limited series and kind of have a six hour rather than like a you know two or three like it's Twin Peaks the return like I'm I so mean, glad I didn't try to do it as a movie that like there's no way yeah when you were talking about that forest uh the British utopia instantly came to mind one mm-hmm. of the best like limited series so I, good I remember seeing incredible stuff so good and, and of course the American version completely fucking screwed the pooch yeah they, they got it wrong in so many so so many every every conceivable way they fucked it up yeah yeah. I think Ian was like only you and I that saw it, but I, I loved it. <laughs> Super good. <laughs> and, and also, but unfortunately, may have, may have aged somewhat poorly uh, due to the subject matter of the whole pandemic thing. You know, yeah, the whole like QAnon <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, what's interesting. I find interesting about this uh, both the book and the movie, though, is. Uh, you know, we're talking about the uniquely American concerns of annihilation and its concerns about the environment. 
but stalker is weirdly actually concerned about the environment that's part mm -hmm. of what's driving the plot of this movie and i was like why would that be a such a pressing issue in the soviet union then i like thought about azerbaijan i was like never mind of course it's a pressing yeah. issue in the soviet union like yeah. you got i'd be mean, like in 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 some of the central asian and uh and eastern european like periphery areas of the Soviet Union, you had basically, I mean, they're filming in a toxic, a very beautiful toxic waste dump, apparently, but uh, a toxic waste dump nonetheless. Um, and, and so I, I wonder how much, like, that's, that's an interesting theme in this movie, because you can tell it's not Tarkovsky's main concern, but it's mm -hmm. not something he feels like he needs to <laughs> Clearly. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> not personally, anyway. No, not, not to, uh, yeah, I know, too soon, but like, yeah, clearly it wasn't his main concern. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's um, interesting, yeah, go ahead. No, so I, I had one more uh, clip I wanted to introduce into the record, and I think it's interesting to put it here. Um, Introduce record, yeah. I always say that. I don't know. This is uh, <laughs> this is Tarkovsky talking about uh, art and spirituality. And That's because I'm wearing a black robe today. So exactly, he's, he's, yes. he's feeling very. Uh, I, I say that like every episode. It's the first time anyone's. Said <laughs> I, 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 I usually make the same joke. It's it's so funny. <laughs> black robe and bisexual lighting. Let's watch it. <laughs> <laughs> he's living that Benedetto life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> которые в жизни делают одно, в своих фильмах они, в своих фильмах они говорят совершенно о другом, выдвигают какие-то другие идеи, высказывают другие новые совершенно идеи. То есть каким-то образом у них уживается их совесть с теми мыслями, которые они выражают в своих фильмах. Я как-то не умел никогда это... И для меня кино это не профессия, это моя жизнь. И каждый фильм для меня... Это поступок. Мне кажется, что для того, чтобы строить любую концепцию, в частности, взгляд на искусство, следует, прежде всего, ответить на другой вопрос, гораздо более важный и общий. Вообще, зачем человек живет? В чем смысл человеческого существования? Использовать наше пребывание здесь, на земле, для того, чтобы духовно возвыситься. Это означает, что искусство должно наше служить сказать, для этого. Видимо, скажем, я избрал другой принцип э и смысл жизни для себя. Очевидно, искусство для меня выглядело бы в другом смысле, и я бы должен был изобрести что-то другое. Не знаю, была такая точка зрения, что искусство таким же образом познавательно, как и вся остальная человеческая интеллектуальная и духовная деятельность на планете. Я вообще не слишком верю в возможность познания. Знание нас все более и более отвлекает от главной цели, от главной мысли, 
по поводу нашего знания о мире. То есть чем больше мы знаем, тем меньше мы знаем о нем, потому что мы углубляемся и тем самым лишаемся возможности глядеть широко на то, что мы называем жизнью и миром. Искусство служит человеку для того, чтобы помочь ему, так сказать, духовно воспарить, возвыситься над самим собой, используя то, что мы называем свободой воли. Put that on my tombstone. Knowledge leads us away from knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, really, because there's, you know, like, deep, uh, fun, fundamental, I guess, uh, truth that, you know, the more that, the more that we know, the deeper we get into things, and then maybe we get farther away from that inner inner truth that, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I, yeah, he said, he said a lot there in that <laughs> three-minute clip, and no one's going to be able to hear it in the audio version or understand yeah, <laughs> yeah, so unless they unless they uh, understand Russian, um, yeah. in which case they're stoked. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it, it's interesting. I was actually thinking about uh, obnoxious trends in writing right now, and I'm like, hey, no one's ever talked about this as a rant against the PMC. Um, but anyway, that's a very obnoxious trend. But it is interesting. It is, like, a, this I, is, a, it is a rant against the PMC, though. Like he's like, <laughs> he's like, yo, this is a, a scientist and a like a white collar scientist and a fucking uh, writer. Like, yes. what's more PMC than? <laughs> well, what, Let the PMC into the zone, bro. You can't do that, right? <laughs> well, what's interesting about this is, I, I think, what like uh, is the difference between the professor and the and the writer. Um, And I, you know, I want to throw that out to you guys because I have my own uh, thoughts about that. But we haven't really talked about like what do you think these these character types represent? Because they are definitely character types. Like they're mm -hmm. all, you know explicitly like uh, almost allegorical. Um, you know why why is the the, the why is the professor just randomly carrying around a twenty yeah, no kiloton bomb like? <laughs> Average Tuesday, you know. You, have you ever taught college? Uh, you know. You, <laughs> Fair you know. enough. I have taught college, and yes, but um, <laughs> the, the, there have been times when when I was in university that I thought maybe blowing up the world may have been worth it. But <laughs> um, you know, well, I mean, there is, I mean, the center of science fiction a lot of times there is questions about you know um, when when we make a new discovery, right? Like, what is the discovery leading us towards? Um, like, what are the implications yeah. of this? And it does seem like. Uh, the stalker is is completely um, the stalker is has been fully convinced ideologically, I guess, that uh, the zone represents happiness. You go into the zone, you're happy. It seems like the professor, whatever experimentation they did with sending people in there, has learned the opposite lesson that like, no, you don't, you know, this doesn't bring you happiness. In fact, this is an incredibly dangerous, um, you know, like, and and no one's really being vetted. Like, they're not like, hey, can I see like all the places you've been and like, can I read your manifesto before I let you into the into the zone? Like, they're just kind of letting people in based on vibes. And yeah, they're not mean testing the zone. <laughs> it it yeah. does seem to be like, yeah, a, a vibes approved uh, methodology of, of letting people in for sure. Right. Like, it's like, yeah, not that lady, know. not that lady, but you can come. He sucks. In. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I, yeah, there's the, there's those deep questions of like, uh, if if there is a, a new discovery or something, do we just fully embrace it? Who do we let into that zone? And like, if it does, if it is damaging, right? Like, if if you go in there as um. Like as Hitler, they kind of, as they said, right? Like viewers of all types, which is kind of a funny statement. Like I just imagine like a bunch of Hitlers walking in there, but like <laughs> all kinds of viewers. Yeah, 
bunch uh, of Hitlers walking like, to the shorts. So a bunch of Hitlers walking to a bar. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. no, like so like if, if people do have designs that what they want most in the world is, is is world conquest or domination. Like the professor seems to be asking those ethical questions, whereas everybody else yeah. uh, has kind of just decided like, no, we're gonna liberate ourselves through this. Uh, you know, we're all gonna be happy after letting everybody into the zone. And it does seem to be that kind of moralistic question or that ethical question that goes into um, right. like, like you, even like Jurassic Park, like that kind of thing. Like, like we have this now, but should we? But should right. we yeah. have this? Well, I mean, this is my whole point with the comparison to generations, actually. This is a weird uh, Star Trek side bar, but I'll, I'll tie it back. I'm glad I'm not doing this bit, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I think Generations does rip this movie off. Um, because what the Nexus gives you in that stupid movie is everything you want, and then you discover that what you wanted is actually probably some secret regret right. you have in your life, and that has some kind of profound turning point on you. Now, Generations does this stupidly, but that's the crux of this film, is in that backstory with Porcupine, because when faced with what Porcupine actually wants versus what he thinks he actually wants, the right. realization of that causes him to commit suicide. And that's yeah. all the backstory. And that looms further and further. Like, as you go, get closer and closer. You go through the weird tunnels and you're, like, seemingly walking upside down. And, like, you get to this end point in this tiny little room where it also looks like it's nuclear winter and there's a phone ringing for no reason. Um which I really want to discuss that, but yeah, please continue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the phone, phone ringing for no reason. But uh, you get into this room, and yet they don't go in because that that haunting yeah. thing with Porcupine really starts to hit them the closer and closer they get. And you know, the professor decides not to destroy the the room and everybody else, but then. They also don't take the leap into what that room would mean, like because right. there's this implication where the professor is not wrong. If you get confronted with your true desire, you may not like who you are, like, yeah. um, and that that element of this movie I think is 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 fascinating and and it's it's such an interesting idea to think about, like. Like, why would it be be given ultimate happiness be the thing that would like completely destroy you? Like, why is well, in that? the case of I mean, in the case of Porcupine, I, I think that the story is is clearly that he thought of himself as like this selfless person that was mm -hmm. gonna like bring his brother back, and then they're like, "Nah, you just want to get rich like everybody else. You just want to get like, paid, yeah, yeah." You and like, make that it hollowness, that hollowness of realizing, I think that like number one, you're not gonna get your brother back. Number two, like, yeah, you're rich, but like, what can you really do with that money now? Like, I, I think that it does kind of destroy you. And for this to kind of be taking place during the time when uh, you know the the empire is crumbling and everyone is, you know, he seems obsessed throughout this movie with pointing out that everyone's gobbling things up, consuming. Um, mm -hmm. They only care about wealth, like that. That's pervading the entire space, and they're no longer believing in, in basic values. They're no longer believing in anything but the fact that consumption is the the one thing we can really control. Um, I think that it, that it is clear that, that could destroy you uh, within within that. Like, it, it, that's interesting. Do you think? I, I've gone back and forth on this, and I just want to throw this to the stalker fans. Is he saying that about the world in general, or is he saying that about the Soviet Union? Because I think the mm. what I think is interesting is I think the Soviet film critics think he's saying that about the world in general, but I think he's saying it about the Soviet Union. Mm. And yeah, I, think, I think he's saying it about the Soviet Union because I, I don't think that that I don't think that that that, that, that spark exists outside of uh, like other places. You know what I mean? Like mm. I think that there is a, a belief in kind of doctrinaire Marxism that. Uh, you know, teaches about the collective spirit and actually, um, you know, would reject that kind of individualist mentality for you to realize that, you know, 
everything is kind of hollow uh, within this, and it's no different than anything else. And for that to be the thing that uh, causes everything to self-destruct, I think that only, that only could be about the Soviet Union, right? Like, I don't, I don't think, like, because, like, if, if you're looking at, like, uh, you know, the U.S., or if you're looking at, like, Western Europe, like, they, they, we're not pondering these questions. We're like, no, like, obviously the money. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's particularly what in this time period, period right? This yeah. Is, like, from, like, late 70s up through the 80s is a time period where we're, like, like, yeah, Martin Scorsese being a good Catholic is trying to convince us his greed is bad, but we all watch Wall Street and really like Gordon Gecko. Like, yeah, like what brother? What what brother died in the meat grinder? I don't yeah. a brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Real I mean, Thatcher hours, too. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I mean that's it's interesting to think about like because I, I, I do think this this movie resonates with us now because like consumption cynicism is is where we're at. I mean, we can call it capitalist realism, call it whatever. But uh, we live in a very uh, like I teach kids and they don't think there's a future. And that does feel like the way people describe the end of the Soviet Union. Like mm -hmm. and how they describe the end of the Soviet Union within this movie. Right. Like, right. The, the future is the present. Like it, it is that. Uh, non-stop grinding down of everything that just kind of keeps going and going and like uh, for them to kind of confront each other over hope and for him to be like why why are you trying to kill my hope and for him not to like you know the professor not understanding that it's like hope or and the writer too and just being cynical about the whole thing right like this is a destructive force there is no hope here and for the one like the one kind of pure yeah. uh almost like religious or like theological character i think you know being the stalker like he really just does want to leave them to their room to like give them everything they want and like you know, he, his one purpose. He's a believer. Is, yeah. yeah. So, like, we're, we're going to try to snatch that away from him. I, I do think that that is uh, it's definitely a message about, like, Soviet Union. It's also a message about um, that we're in now, like, kind of. I think, like, I don't think anybody has any hope. I think we're all just, like, the, the writer. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, I want to I ask you guys, what do you think about, because I've thought a lot about this, too. Why does this movie, which is essentially a womanless movie, except for the beginning and ending, and... <laughs> Um, in the beginning and the ending in particular, I think the we're supposed to think that maybe the wife is actually the person who's the most correct, but it's it's ambiguous. Like you're talking about the little soliloquy she gives at the at the end, like like mm -hmm. directed towards the camera. I mean, like look look at it from the perspective of what's one of the first things you see, right? Like the camera is going into a room. It's like mm -hmm. the audience is itself going into the room that's going into the zone and and in in that same way it would make sense for her to be addressing the audience uh you know looking at things like from a you know breaking the fourth wall or whatever kind of situation uh but also like i just think it's it's just a book ending the beginning to a certain degree like stalker knows that like it's doing himself and his family harm to do this but he is a believer and the power of belief is so all-encompassing that it will cause you to sacrifice everything else in a lot of cases. And there's a lot of, you know, there, there's arguments to be made that that's a positive attribute, and arguments to make, say that that's, you know, gonna you're gonna wreck your ship on the uh, on the rocks with it. But well, it's, yeah, and, so and the wife goes to great pains to let us know, the audience directly, that yeah. she's okay with it. She's, my my mom wanted me to to ditch you, but you know. They told me, they told me, I heard all the warnings. I, you know, I went into this with, you know, open eyes and I don't regret it. I never have, but it's better to have loved and lost kind of thing. Like better to have an eventful life than just a drab, boring one. 
Yeah, I think I mean, it also it, feels like they're almost in heaven or you know some kind of spiritual realm at the end too. Like it feels yeah. like they're the, the parent, like the, the parents are part of some kind of almost like bureaucracy of, of of angelic forces or whatever. Being like, no, this is like a this is the guy that actually believes that like all this shit is like you, you don't want to be with that guy. Like that guy's gonna drive himself into the fucking zone in the end of it. Like you want to be with someone who's like cynical. So that cynicism even even goes as far as whatever force I guess is out there that you want to uh, say that they're associated with. Yeah, well, what's interesting is the very last scene is the daughter, and we talked a little bit about the the psychokinesis part of that. The other yeah. thing that's interesting about that scene is the daughter is resi- is reciting a uh, a Fyodor uh, Fyodor Tolkien uh, poem, and uh, poetry shows up in Tarkovsky's movies all the time. I talked about all that a little time. bit, and his dad's a poet. Uh, and like, you get the feeling that like, yeah, he thinks writers are full of shit, but maybe poets are okay. Um, mm-hmm. But that it ends on that, and that that last scene is so ambiguous. It's both beautiful, but really kind of disturbing. And then when you think about the content of that love poem being read at the same time, it's it's very it's very unsettling. Like, um, and you you kind of have wonder. I mean, this is me completely going off script, but I'm like, what's the daughter representing? Is the daughter like representing the what he wanted from the room? Like. What's going on there? I mean, he didn't go into the room, at least not that we saw. But um, what's what mm. is going on with that last scene? Because that that I mean, last time I discussed this movie, I spent an hour just trying to figure out what exactly is meant by that. You know, you have the tired stalker comes home from all this after going back to the bar, collapses, his wife does the monologue to the screen, and then we get this weird scene with the daughter, um, and it seems like the way the movie shaped, these are all of a lot of import, but they're also not explained. Like, I mean, I guess the, the monologue directly into the screen is pretty explanatory, but the last scene is absolutely <laughs> not. Like, <laughs> I mean, is that kind of the, the, the hope kind of springing eternal, right? Like he seems to be dying off and the, the daughter is left with kind of the powers of uh, like hope and, and, and the, you know, the power she got from the zone itself. And like, that it kind of feels like it's almost like a, a coda to it, right? Like it, at the end of it, they're like, well, you know, hope still exists in the form of this uh, mutated girl, but like, you know, it's it's dying away from the father. Yeah, and it's also smashing a glass. Like, so it's it's hopeful, but there's a slight, there is a slight ominousness to it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's a very hard, I mean, like, just as a writer, you know, I'm a poet and, and it, that kind of emotional resonance, like, is really hard to capture. And it's really hard to capture in film, too, honestly. I think film's a little bit easier. But it's, it, you know, there's a, almost a negative capacity about the end of this movie where, like, you're being given hope. But in a fairly hopeless-seeming situation, particularly when you look at how drab the non-zone world is depicted, and... Uh, it's portrayed as like ultimately like the sacrifices are worth it and there's something born out of it that's really worth it but there may be an edge to that too um and I, I don't know I, I think I think that's a very it's a very fascinating sentiment to leave on particularly after you spent so much time with these three kind of archetypical you know uh you know the writer the professor and and the stalker um and and uh that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to think about because this is not 
this doesn't ultimately end up being really about the writer or the professor's journey, even though they're both they're both profoundly changed by it. It's actually about like the stalker's journey and his family. So that's that's something that I just puzzle about, you know, given given the asymmetry of screen time and whatnot. Yeah, this I think was that's an American fair. movie. We've got the backstory and it obnoxiously and it'd been like 25 minutes oh, about the family and tons of flashbacks, <laughs> you know, jump cuts. Uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ian, how do you how do you feel about it? I think that's a very interesting topic. Uh, how do I feel about oh what happened? We lost somebody. No, no far don't, don't worry about it. Cool. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Um yeah, the the sort of asymmetry of the the gender yeah. thing. I don't know. I think it's I think it's profound that Tarkovsky does give two female characters the last word. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it kind you know, is this going to pass the Bechdel test? No, no. but um, it, it it does. Uh, do, it, you know, a a it was a very different time. Uh, two, um, you know, I I feel like at least he's making an overture toward you know trying to include um some some female uh, a female voice and then a female face um i don't know i can you know to me really what stands out like i i'm totally with uh varn about like deconstructing that last scene like what the fuck is it trying to say but mostly i'm just like wrapped by looking at that child's mm-hmm. face like the way Tarsk- oh, yeah. tarkovsky shoots frames heads is like revelatory to me i could watch uh you know any, if you just watch any of his movies, the way he f- f- shoots heads, faces, heads mostly, um, is is unique and and sort of awe inspiring. So just like looking at like just I I have a I have a gif saved of the kid you know monkey moving that glass like it's on my desktop. I watch it all the time. Just like the you know one point five second loop of it. Um, it, it's it's remarkable. Like and that's like. There, there are a couple of images. It's you know the 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 crazy. Once they get into the zone, the the those sand dunes, whatever, with the the bird flying mm-hmm. across. One image. Second image, the the stalker laying down in the water with the dog, and then the third image, monkey with her head on the kitchen table. Like those are the three things that I remember, uh, you know, about this about this movie. And so, the fact that she's on screen for less than five minutes. Um, total in the movie and and still you know reaches that the pet pinnacle for me is super intense and him carrying her away from the bar on his shoulders and that just really grim exterior shot with the nuclear power plant in the background man i like i i that hit me very differently this time watching it um than any other time just like the reality that they're living in both the people in the film and probably the people at the end of the Soviet experiment, man, that was, that looks fucking grim. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. 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 Looks a bit like Detroit to me, but, uh, yes. Well, but yeah, but it's also about to get a lot. Gr- I mean, the thing is we all know because we have the unfortunate hindsight of history. that It's about yes. to get a lot grimmer. Um, yeah. The next 10 years, not going to be great guys. Next, yeah. next 30 years, not going to be great. Yeah, the next ten years after that are going to be far worse. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, for, you know, for real. Like, that's when like that's when they bring in the old uh, the old Yeltsin shock. Right, yeah. and like uh, what like one fifth of the male population just dies, and no one even like no one even notices. Like yeah. it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I was actually thinking about that the way Tarkovsky films faces, and it's weird because I can only like to find analogs to that. You really have to like go back to very early filmmakers. Like the only other person who film who films faces like that is like. Uh, 
Carl Theodore Dreyer, the German, uh, the German filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like in the transition from silent to talking movies. So like the, mm. the face is doing a whole lot of, of yeah. substituting for. That was 90% uh, of the filmmaking was the face. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and like that's there's that's what's interesting. Italian filmmaking too during that period. I think there's like some, uh, yeah, they yeah. Look, at, look at Joan of Arc, right? Why is that a masterpiece? Well, have you seen it? Yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll know why exactly. It's all in the expressiveness. It's all to say that's Carl Theodor Dreyer. I mean, he's really famous for two movies Joan of Arc and Vampire, and that's pretty much it. And oh, I didn't, I didn't know he did. I that, yes, then absolutely, because Joan of Arc is. It's astounding how little is actually actually happens in that, but it's all in the face. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I just love it. May, it this, this, uh, this period of cinema, particularly Tarkovsky. Um, it makes me really sad that we don't really have this anymore because I mean, even now in the streaming era where we're back to what mid mid budget movies are finally kind of being made again because they're being made for streaming. Um, we still we still have kind of lost a lot of this sensibility. I know I'm going to sound like the old boomer here, but like, um, <laughs> even though I, I, it, this is one of those shows where I'm not the oldest person, um, but uh, it, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to to think about that because I don't I really don't see stuff like this being made. I mean, Lynch. I, I just when you guys mentioned Lynch, Lynch is kind of like the only person who gets away. With the only one. Shit there's that one episode of Twin Peaks: The Return where there's a four minute scene of some dude sweeping up, and people yep. were losing their shit about it. And I was like, I love. It's that. really great. It's super fucking compelling. Somehow, <laughs> somehow it makes it compelling. I feel like I feel like also uh, Twilight Zone, not, not the newer one, but like the older Twilight Zone, kind of got away with doing a lot of stuff like this too throughout yeah. its run, but like in short form, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Conan, you wanted to talk about that phone. Let's talk about that phone. <laughs> What's up? What's up with the phone, everybody? Like, I like that it works, first of all. And then there's like a comedic moment where, where it's like, really? Yeah, that's a, that's a, what's the backstory there? Uh, I mean, think about where they're at, right? They're, they're in this sort of like liminal space, alternate universe, uh, you know, kind of two minutes, away, two minute walk away from like the Godhead and here, the, Oh, there's a phone. Oh, let me, and what's your first response? Let's go pick it up. Oh, who's on the other end of this? Oh no. Well, and that, that made me, that made me wonder, I think if there Amazing. was some kind of plot where he's like, Oh, you know, I found the bomb. It was hidden behind bunker four or whatever. So it yeah. seems like there might've been some kind of plot where the, you know, the, the scientists who originally found this zone um, might have uh, hidden something and then, you know, decided at the last minute that this conspiracy shouldn't go through and then they hit it. And then the guy's like, it, my, my favorite detail of this whole scene is when he's like, it's because I slept with your wife 20 years ago and this is your revenge. And that's just such an odd detail to throw into this. Like, oh, there's personal drama between these two characters. We never see yeah. the other one, but they do have some kind of personal history. Oh, awesome. Cool. Like, are we going to find out more about that? No. Okay. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you will not. He seems to no. not have known that the guy slept with his uh, wife too. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Amazing moment. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it merits any more discussion than that. And the fact that an already like elongated uh, movie with, with a, a lot of things to think about is one more like, what the, what, what was up with the phone? Like, what? <laughs> why is there a phone call? Why is there a wrong number? Who's calling the zone? Who's calling the zone? Exactly. <laughs> Did they get a digit wrong? Like, what the? <laughs> Who put oh, the phone I there? To to I was meaning to talk to a different professor in a different part of the zone. Yeah. Oh, my bad, I was trying, My bad. I was trying to call AutoZone. 
<laughs> Get in the zone, auto zone. Do you want to do letterbox one-liners? Forrest, I would love to. Letterbox is a place for film. It is a place where film lovers get to talk at, with, and to each other. Bottom-up democracy, not just the Siskels and Eberts getting to have their say. Everyone gets to have their say. People talk about the movies they love, the movies that they didn't love, the movies that they find at sleep aids. Uh, anything and everything, it's all there. Best expressed in the classic one-liner, working your tight five, like Andy World with his uh, brick wall uh, at the stand-up club. Uh, Lee's are the letterbox one-liners for Stalker. Let's roll them. That dog was really just vibing, though. <laughs> to be clear, everybody in this movie was just vibing, though. Literally, yeah. <laughs> Even those birds, you know, just vibing. Yeah. Just vibing. Even that porcupine until he hung himself. The, whole the vibes movie... were fucked. <laughs> the vibes were indeed. The whole movie is just what your grandpa describes. It was like traveling to school in his day. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a big room and they wouldn't let me bring a gun into it. And that would never happen today. No, you could totally bring a gun into school. Yeah. <laughs> Encourage. Three Slavs discover the real treasure was the existential crisis each found along the way. Winner, we can stop now. We're not going to top that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's so good. You know, I mean, it, it is kind of it is kind of a French story in that way, right? Like, I feel like the French had a lot of time to think about this kind of stuff too. <laughs> oh yeah, under various occupations. <laughs> Are you kidding me? My dad's beeper went off during this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Now, here's a little story I'd like to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, that is that is the American remake, right? Is like uh, <laughs> Will Smith and Stalker. Um... <laughs> The, the American the American remake is that they get to the center of the uh, they get to the center of the maze and it's the Amazon fulfillment center. Yeah, oh. yeah. And then uh, what's his face from the room pops up. He's like, "Oh, hi, Mark." <laughs> oh shit! I took both pills and now I'm stuck at the threshold <laughs> of the room. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it's Matrix liminal spaces. This. Yeah, <laughs> gobble it up. Imagine finding a working telephone in the middle of an abandoned factory. <laughs> That's Soviet infrastructure for you, man. It's a, it's a, rot it's a rotary phone, phone, too. You know, it's... It looks like crap, but it still works. Okay. Yeah. Tchaikovsky had one camera, a dream, and a ditch. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> that didn't escalate quickly <laughs> alright I take it back I, I said we weren't going to talk the second one and here we are we've talked <laughs> I was waiting for the whole three hours for something to happen like... yeah, there's only three stars too <laughs> Kramer what's going on in here the zone wants to be respected. Otherwise, it will punish Jerry. <laughs> I made I made that as a as a after after reading this last night, I sent it to you. I made that as a meme and put the yeah. fucking zone in there. I should have used it for. I, I was later. thinking of you when I with pulled the the, the Roy down. Rogers roasters red glare. <laughs> <laughs> Roy Rogers roasters. Kenny Rogers roasters. Sorry, <laughs> I like it better as Roy Rogers. <laughs> totally. Three men with very visible male pattern baldness talking about philosophical shit for three hours. Great movie. One star. No, just a heart. No, just a heart. No, oh, my a bad. My bad. My no, it's bad. a light. There's no stars, but it is light. <laughs> right. Apologies, Mikey. Mikey, why? Mikey, Forgive but the me. two wise. Two wise. Uh, and then, that's essential crisis from, I think. 
<laughs> totally. <laughs> I was going to say the second Y is for value. Uh, those are the Letterbox one-liners for Stalker. Of course, please follow the show, Moving Extravaganza, on Letterbox. That is your host, Forrest, here. I am Kona Neutron. I'm all over that biz. Uh, you can come get me over there. J. Andrew World, watching all the weirdest stuff. And you can ask him why he's spending his time that way if you want. Uh, or you can learn. You can learn or you can say that smarky thing. Uh, Ian, you're on there. I know you mostly use it for the watch list feature. But uh, what, what's your username on there? I never remember. Man, I, I couldn't even tell you. I, fantastic. <laughs> it might be Teen Archer. Try that. Teen, it's pro- it is Teen Archer. I remember. Yes, it, it is. is. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, Varn, you are on Letterboxd as and- well. And um, I'm I'm, I'm I glad you're mostly should. tracking movies. If I if I've uh, noticed correctly, yeah, I, I, you track everything I watch, and I I will star it, but I don't actually generally yeah. uh, do reviews. Um, well, that's how I started, and I'm in a bit on a movie show about it. So watch out. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, of course, as always, uh, Letterbox is a place for film. J. Andrew World. Full bisexual lighting. Please, please, please take. A oh, Ian, Ian, Ian has a soft stop, so I was gonna let him do uh, his final thoughts. If oh, he dipped out. All right. Well, oh. then. Never mind. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we won't be plugging Ian. World away. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, if you are watching us right now on Twitch, um, and you can help us out uh, greatly by subscribing, uh, if if you happen to have oh. an Amazon Prime in, account. Hold on. Okay. If you happen to have an Amazon, yeah. pro- just let me go, dude. All right, but he he said he had a soft stop at seven, so I was yeah, I know, I know. So, so stop stopping me. Okay. Okay. Amazon Prime account. You can subscribe for free. That helps us out. Do that. YouTube. Do the YouTube things. Like, subscribe, comment, hit the bell, and, and a big ask here: watch to the end of the video because that helps other film fans find our uh, content. So, um, you know, you like like what you see here. Watch to the end to get that great Code of Neutron song at the end. Um, if if you really want to to not uh, hear the you know you just want to hear the beauty of the Russian language without the subtitles, this is available <laughs> in podcast form where you can do that. I um, think about that every time we do a foreign language film, which we do a lot of. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, wherever you get your podcasts, we're probably there. Uh, if you can't find us, let us know, and we'll probably try try to get added there. And we'll hassle Forrest about it. Yes. <laughs> we also, but I don't know how to do that. So Yeah. Okay. But we have a Patreon, uh, which is good. And, and uh, whenever you join, you get to have access to all the after parties forever. After party forever. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sick, so I can't really sing. I got my allergies <laughs> going. <laughs> I'm exhausted, so I couldn't even think about what the lyrics are. Are we? Uh, it's all are we based on something party, I said. By the way, are we doing a? Uh, a you know, I'm down. I'm down. All right. I know yeah. Ian is, and Ian's barely sticking around to his final thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Conan has uh, stuff for you to get, such as his great uh, new album, Dangerous Nomenclature, uh, with, yeah. with a new music video coming soon. And uh, yes, uh, yes. Um, uh, Protonic reversals on break this week. So um, I can't think of any Russian interviews that you've done, uh, which is a shame because uh, I would have loved to have you to have interviewed Alliance, uh, the guy from Alliance before he passed. You've never uh, heard of Putin's uh, famous interview with Putin? <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic Protonic reversal. Oh, I missed that one. Okay. Um, yeah, check out Coda's interview with Putin. Yeah, but episode, <laughs> episode 300 next week, uh, I just was 
I was too beat from tour. So yes. That's my excuse. Uh, he also has a Patreon, so you can get the episodes early, uh, usually like a day. Um, and uh, subscribe on YouTube for uh, to Protonic Reversal, because yes. we want eyeballs on that stuff. Uh, Ian, are you going on tour soon? No touring uh, until September for me right now. What I've got to plug are uh, basically just the Rigs of Dad podcast. It's a twice weekly podcast I do with Ross of Rigs of Dad. We have a Patreon, uh, but the weekly episode is free for everybody. And we're just starting a, uh, a sub program, uh, a little short run show about the bands on the run vh1 reality series from 2001 so if that is your jam check out rigs of dad on just about every social media platform i was just talking about that uh, on the way back from this tour outstanding and was shocked by how much detail i remembered from something that happened so long ago yeah it's <laughs> complete i'm watching it for the first time it's completely blowing my mind it has not aged well folks in case you were curious <laughs> i love the david cross bit about harlow as well oh my god it's a telephone you know, do you have uh, final final thoughts? Because I, I want to make sure that you get out of here on time. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, final thoughts are, you know, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I loved getting to chat about it with you guys, and I loved being compelled to watch it again. Um, I, you know, it's just so rich, like all of Tarkovsky's stuff. It's just so rich that every time you watch it, you, you I, I'll, I'll use uh, the first person. Every time I watch it, any of his stuff, I get more and more out of it, with the possible exception of Sacrifice and Solaris. The ones that I love, like <laughs> <laughs> the ones that I love, though, like Stalker, Rublev, uh, Mirror, every time I watch them, I, I get more and more and more out. Of it. And it had been a while since I'd seen this. So I was I was thrilled to watch it again and talk about it with some some like minded folks. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Varn, uh, what do you got? Yeah, Varn, 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 who's no. coming up this week on, on your show? God, I, I don't even know. Um, let's see. Uh, probably Matt uh, Cavagrodi is doing a part two discussing the history of the Federal Reserve. Um, I have upcoming episodes uh, with uh, Stefan Hamill on Mark's class consciousness. I have upcoming episodes. I have a bunch of episodes on art actually coming out. Uh, uh, which is not something that my audience is used to, but um, the editor of Unlikely Stories magazine, who is my first publisher, uh, is going did an episode with me that will come out probably in the next month. Um, there's a, a episode I recorded today with uh, Glenn McDorman of the Clay Temple Media uh, group who do podcasts on uh, literature and uh, specifically the work of Gene Wolfe, but also on like, uh, weird fiction like Jeff Andermeer, who we mentioned earlier, um, and H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft, if you're into early 20th century weird-ass racist literature, um, and uh, which I, I think is it's good for what it is. Um, and uh, I also have a book out. Uh, it's book poetry. It's not political analysis or whatever. And uh, so that, was, that is uh, Liberation and All the Bright, etc. It's going in for a second printing. Thank you guys for buying all of it. Yeah, it's a poetry yeah, yeah. micro press, so it's not hard to buy it out. But thank you guys for selling. I think probably the 200 copies, so then I have to do another printing, and probably means I'll get to do a third book. Um, and uh, I recently wrote uh, an article um, arguing indirectly with Ben Burgess about Bernie 2024 um, for Sublation Magazine. So that's uh, what's out for me. Um, and uh, so yeah. That's that's my plugs. Uh, and 
I'm on, I feel like I'm on every show now somehow. Like, <laughs> including <laughs> this one. Yeah. Um, I, I was on, oh, I was on Left Reckoning this week. So if people want to check that out, uh, uh, that's, that'd be, I, I'd welcome the extra reviews over there. And so would David and Matt, I'm guessing. They do good right. work. So, you know. Yeah, they do. Actually. Yeah, they, they, they've, done, they've done a lot of good work. Um, do you have final thoughts on this movie? This is this is one of my four favorite movies, and uh, my four favorite movies are all equal in favoriteness. Um, so it's you know when I say it's my favorite, it's like well yeah, but it's also my other favorite is Ran, and my other favorite is a Bergman movie, and my other fa- but um, I will fucking love this movie, and I've watched it now six times, um, and I get something different from it every time. And even though I have to drink coffee beforehand, because I'm not going to lie, the beginning is both fascinating. And yet also, if you're not prepared for it, you will go to sleep. Um, uh, and I, I, but it's, it's such a rewarding movie. Um, I, I also, I, I want to stand late uh, Tarkovsky because I think people are more familiar with early Tarkovsky up to this movie, but his last three movies are uh I haven't seen The Sacrifice. Actually, that's the, the only Tarkovsky movie I haven't seen. Um, but uh, Mirror and uh, Nostalgia, I think, are, are brilliant. And for those who think that Tarkovsky's uh, sexist, I think they should go watch Mirror because it's mostly about women. Um, and it's very, very fascinating. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. I didn't know you had uh, Mishima in your uh, top four, by the way. We've totally yeah. invited you on for the episode. I conscripted Erica Stroud into doing it, which oh, she loved yeah. it. But... I love that movie. That movie, Me too. Is, I, mean, I mean, weird movie, but you know, Paul Schrader writing a movie about a fascist Japanese gay man, but it's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Pretty bizarre. Who was also a filmmaker. If you've ever want to watch some, some strange movies, watch his movies because he made yeah. some. Um, patriotism, his most famous short story is also a, a film that directed by him. Um, and so, uh, kind of, I mean, for kind of interesting movie, if it is a little bit fascisty, um, but yeah, Paul Schrader's movie, but version of that is, is brilliant. It's, I, it's incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible movie. I hard sold yeah. the entire crew on doing it. I'm like we're doing it. It's going to be this date. It's so good. It's so, and I think, I, but everyone liked it. I mean, I want like, to pull it up in the outer print. So, so the, somebody's uh, Mishima um, letterbox went viral the other day that I thought was hilarious. I okay, let's see. Oh, really? Like, but I'll, right. I'll find it in the after party. Okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, moving on to Conan. Final thoughts. Yeah, uh, you know, look, this is a very compelling film. Uh, it, there's a lot to love with it. Uh, it's it's a masterclass in cinematography and patience. Uh, it's deeply f- philosophical and mysterious. I said earlier, it's kind of unclear when it takes place, and I love that. Like, is it an alternate reality? Is it some fantasy world? Is it post-apocalyptic? Is it just uh, dudes vibing in the Soviet Union? You know, it's never really addressed. It just is, and that's uh, all you got to know is there's a place that will grant you your innermost desire of your heart, and there's a guy that will take you there. Cool. I don't need to know anything else. Fantastic. So you got a tiny cast that does like a lot of heavy lifting and uh, some ponderous long shots used to great effect. And as difficult as it is described, I mean, it does really seem like one of the greatest games of let's pretend ever. Uh, and the, the craziest thing is that it works. And as you, um, as you see these guys kind of get closer to like their stated goal, you realize that there's more depth to all of them than they really let on. 
and uh, you know, it, it's hard as I mentioned with the, the writer, any, any artist, you know, a lot of things the writer brings up are questions that any artist asks themselves all the time. So, you know, this is a one of a kind masterwork. And, uh, you know, if I'm going to talk any trash, it's a, it's a wee bit long, but it's good. And uh, it's a, it's a great film to uh, to vibe to, but it's also just a great film in general. Yeah. Uh, Andy? Yeah, I've been uh, procrastinating to watch this film because, like, it is a long, you know, nearly three hours. Uh, He's still watching it, actually. He's watching yeah. the other screen. <laughs> um, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, I'm still in the middle of a move, so it's like I'm so physically exhausted at the end of the day. Um, yeah, want to like, watch a three-hour ponderous movie where dudes <laughs> fucking yeah. the same but like it, it totally is worth it too. Like, like, like that's the thing. Like, like uh, you know, despite all this, the the, the everything that sounds like it's it's going against it, uh, it, it is uh, actually makes it worth it. And I know um, one thing that that uh, this movie got me thinking about, and I know uh, Varn can back me up on this because we grew up like a half hour from each other. Um, but but uh, the 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 scenes of watching like nature taking back like the tanks and the cars and stuff always reminded me of the uh, you know reminded me of the kazoo uh, in uh, in Georgia um, how how that's like uh, uh, you know ravaged parts of Georgia where where like these farmhouses are like taken over by uh, uh, by this plant um, uh, almost like this weird horror story and, and just seeing that 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 was like the first thing I thought of was just the the, the weird apocalyptic plant. Uh, takeover in parts of georgia um so so uh you know it's it's and the thing is that's not even what the movie's about <laughs> um you know it just uh that that setting was just so like you get lost in it and and the the, the sound design the the hypnoticness of it, the rhythm of of the silence and, and there is rhythm to it um it, it all works in a way that uh, uh, that that very few movies could, could uh, ever hope to try to pull off. Agreed. All right. Well, my final uh, quote that I'm going to pull is: "This pipe is the worst part of the zone. It's called a meat grinder. How many people has it ground up?" So, yep. Uh, like and subscribe, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>